Theory, like all matter in motion, is nature folding over itself in sensuous practice. Thus, the material reality of philosophy is not an isolated epistemological or social constructivism, but a real region of nature that really constructs and transforms nature into various patterns of motion. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our discussion with our wonderful guest today, just want to throw out that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there, or you know, if not, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a nice review on iTunes, maybe leave us a nice little message saying explain to Luz, and you know, we'll give you a shout out on the, on the following week's episode. We're very excited to bring our listeners, Thomas Nail, currently teaching at the University of Denver. He did do his undergrad at the University of North Texas, and uh, as a Texan, it's very cool to see that. So North Texas is the Eagles. I forget the, the mascot. <laughs> Yeah, it was the Eagles. Yeah. Thomas is a prolific author. I mean, he's got a whole laundry list of incredible titles that I would definitely recommend taking a look at. One we'll primarily focus on today will be Marks in Motion. But just to flag for the listeners, you know, if you have an interest in, in Lucretius, Thomas might be your, uh, your go-to for some interesting theories. We've been actually asking our guests just to start things off a little bit. Of, we've been calling it like, your what's your philosophical origin story, or maybe maybe even specifically to Deleuze and Guattari, if there's like a standout moment in life or singularity that you can kind of point to that, you know, just kind of lit you on fire for this type of material or philosophy in general, you know, whatever you'd like to say on that note, you know, you don't have to be too extensive, but uh, if there's something that stands out for you, we'd love to hear that. Thanks, Cooper, for having having me on. I really appreciate you taking the time to oh, read my works and and ask me these and great questions. So yeah, the the first one I will not recount the whole litany, but I'll just say punk rock. <laughs> punk rock is how I got into philosophy and specifically political philosophy, and within that specifically anarchist political philosophy and activism. So that was sort of my coming to consciousness moment of just having a bit of a adolescent existential crisis of global proportion, <laughs> just realizing a lot of things. But punk music, in particular, this Canadian punk rock band, Propagandi, for me was absolutely just a pivotal, a pivotal moment that sent me down a course of, you know, there's all of their lyrics are very, they're very smart, you know, they're very clever. They were very detailed about political history and political theory and all these references to Noam Chomsky including like pamphlets and long quotes in their linear notes from Noam Chomsky. I'm like, who's Noam Chomsky? You know, um, so I'm reading Noam Chomsky for the first time. And this is actually all in Texas where I, I got into punk rock and started playing in punk rock bands and, you know, got involved with all 
different kinds of activist work and food not bombs and critical mass and animal rights stuff and feminist activism. And I don't know. I mean, I was just really all over the map. Everything that I could do, I really tried. And that really got me interested in political theory. And from there, so I started doing political political science and uh, philosophy and realized I just philosophy really had, that was really digging deep into understanding what, you know, what political theory was all about, what anarchism and the history of political theory. So for me, my orientation was fundamentally kind of a political one in the beginning. And that sort of sent me on a path leading me through like the next step was kind of ecofeminism, which I thought really kind of brought together a lot of different, I don't know, different aspects of critical theory all together. And, you know, it wasn't exactly perfect in hindsight, and it had some limits. And those limits are kind of what brought me actually to Deleuze and Guattari, who there's already a huge amount of literature written on them in anarchism, but kind of as post-anarchists. And I was like, oh, yeah, post-anarchism, like, there we go. (laughs) Like, they're gonna, they're gonna one up anarchist theory. And so I think they contribute a lot to anarchist theory. And so that was my orientation originally was kind of environmentalism, feminism, anarchism, and political activism. And so I did political activism all through undergrad, all through grad. And yeah, as much as I can now these days with kids. So it's pretty <laughs> limited. Life is is much more limited at this point. To all of that, I can just give a hearty Texan, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, my trajectory is, I think, a little bit, it's, it's sort of similar. In grad school, I got into, I think, Foucault in particular is a figure that got me specifically into this kind of post-anarchist space or like, you know, post-structuralist anarchism. And it's been an interest of mine ever since. And that, you know, ultimately that kind of laid the seeds for what, you know, kind of why I'm doing the podcast now. And I thought it was kind of interesting. One of your first books was on the Zapatistas. And um, when I was in grad school, I had done one of my big research projects was, uh, it was like a, what do you call it? Not a focus group, but uh, I looked at several different groups that were sort of utilizing information technology because at the time web Uh, 2.0 this was like 2008 2009 so web 2.0 was really getting off of its feet and you know at the time i you know i was a little bit more i was definitely more liberal i think overall in my i guess my intellectual (laughs) position but you know i thought web 2.0 stuff was going to be great this was going to be like this democratic you know this great democratic boon to civilization and you know mm-hmm. perhaps allow us to lead this kind of information insurgency but yeah the the zapatistas having you know they were using like usenet groups and stuff to gain like the attention of ngos and stuff in the early to mid 90s so that was like an early example that i drew from so i thought that was kind of cool that that was kind of one of your early projects or at least books that was published yeah, that was definitely, that was my, I mean, you know, the connection there, Noam Chomsky and Propagandi and Rage Against the Machine. And there's no shortage of punk rock groups that, you know, at the, around that time that recognized the Zapatistas as doing something really interesting and, and revolutionary. And that was, that was like my first really big political love. I'm like, this is amazing stuff. Like, that's the kind of work I want to do. So that was actually at UNT where I really got into Zapatismo, like full nice. force. I had been reading about it ever since, you know, Propaganda, Tom Chomsky and all that. And, you know, I really got into writing about them and they remain such an inspiration to me. And I think really, although not directly, the lines of indirect and simultaneous connection between Dulles and Guattari and Zapatismo is just, I mean, they're happening kind of around the same time, or at least a, a thousand plateaus and Zapatismo are happening sort of around the same time and their beginnings and sort of developing in, you know, different geographical regions and in different ways. But that was, yeah, Zapatismo remains a really important pivotal point. <laughs> Would you describe yourself still as an anarchist or what is oh, that yeah. sort of like? 
the meaning of what that means to me right, changes. Yeah, guess, uh, right. It's not the same thing as when I was like 16 or 17. You know, it doesn't mean the same thing anymore right. to me, but but it's not totally different. Anyway, that might be a whole other conversation, I, but I would definitely still consider myself to be an anarchist. And especially after reading David Graeber's most recent book, The Dawn of Everything, I mean, I that's a lot to chew on from an anarchist perspective because he doesn't really come to the conclusions of, I don't know, typical anarchist you know, kind of politics. It's much more complicated. That's more closely where I, I feel having gone through kind of more early, roughly humanist kind of 19th century anarchism to post-anarchism and Deleuze Guattari, Foucault, and, and now to, I don't even know what, <laughs> I don't right, even yeah. know exactly how to identify what this kind of, how this relates to the history of anarchism. That's like a whole other thing I haven't really totally digested yet, exactly what this Dawn of Everything book means for thinking about anarchism in a deep historical sense, not just 19th century forward, but deep historical, right. like pa what is Paleolithic anarchism? They use exactly. this term in the book, like Paleolithic cosmopolitanism and, you know, schismogenesis. And I really, that idea Ooh. that sort of societies play off each other. I mean, like Bateson talks about, but they extend it, you know, Bateson's really kind of, he's focusing on inside of a single culture, there's sort of really kind of binary or polar positions, and those will magnify one each other, they'll define each other increasingly until they sort of reach the limits of their extremities. And then some cultures have ways of just shifting it all up and breaking it all down and then starting over again. And there has to be this way to release the binaries because they're always proliferating and then they're intensifying. And so people become different. Anyway, they generalize it and say people are becoming different. Cultures respond to other cultures and become increasingly different in part because of the relational character, because of the relational character base. Because it's an interesting right. kind of relational theory of political evolution. And it doesn't always lead you to direct democracy and Zapatismo, you know, like schismogenesis might lead you all over the place. Um, it won't necessarily lead you and lead cultures into formations. But the thing is, it also means nothing is ever locked in right. either. So whatever hierarchies might emerge, there's a built-in process for many in many of these prehistoric societies that is sort of built in to undermine the emergence and crystallization of hierarchies. So it's, it's complicated. It's not definitely anti-hierarchical, but it's not hierarchical either. You know, I mean, right. schismogenesis really, I'm still thinking on it. So I'll, I'll just. I'll yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the rhizome, right? The rhizome, you know, you can attach arboreal structures onto the rhizome. It's not specifically horizontal. So that sort of tracks. And it even sort of feels like that, you know, the way you're discussing cultures, like that's almost like the, feels like the flows of motion and folding and so forth that we'll get into, you know, that's kind of first where my head went when you're discussing that. But back to, I guess, this question of, of anarchism, I guess, personally. So we had Ray Brassier on the podcast, I guess, maybe even to go before that, I, I've sort of felt like anarchism is kind of what I've identified with, at least relatively speaking, in terms of like any kind of ideology. But um, we did have Ray Brassier on the podcast fairly recently. And, you know, he just sort of laid out, I guess, an argument or, you know, he just discussed how important Marx is becoming for his work. And, you know, that kind of made my ears perk up quite a bit, to be honestly. And stemming from that, Taylor and I have been reading Anti-Oedipus and been doing a series on that for some time over the last probably, maybe even it's been a year or so that we've been kind of slowly working on and off through there when we don't have guests on the podcast. And so that combined, I don't know, Marxism has been something that's been a lot more catching a lot more cachet with me personally. And I'm finding myself, you know, a little bit more attracted to a type of Marxism, like a Deleuze Guattarian type of Marxism, I would perhaps say, you know, perhaps, you know, that's maybe I'm becoming Marx-ish. 
that in particular is what drove me to say, hey, let's, you know, when Taylor mentioned your work and so forth and having you on, that's why Marks in Motion was kind of the, the work that I wanted to focus on the most. There's a longstanding conflict between Marxism and anarchism that has kept me away from Marx for many, many years. That and the incredibly just Marx is not the best writer, in my opinion. He is not. I mean, Engels has done his best to, uh, you know, edit. But Marx, I don't think, is a very clear writer. It takes work to get through that. And I stopped and started getting into Marx and Capital for so, so many times. I always felt something was important, especially after Deleuze and Guattari, but I never felt like I really got it. Honestly, if like, I mean, I knew what Deleuze and Guattari were saying, and I liked yeah. that, but I was just like, I don't, who knows how they're like, interpreting this, like, they're not exactly very close scholars when they treat Marx, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing with it. And that's fine. But I really wanted to see what Marx had to say. And this is different. This is not to say Marxism, because Marxism is much larger than Marx, um, right. who has that wonderful quote where he says he would not consider himself a Marxist. Marxism is filled with all these waves. And I mean, my book is not a history or study of Marxism, but more really about Marx's, specifically his dissertation, early writings, and then those early kind of conceptual, really just the first chapter, that very long, difficult chapter of Capital. We actually looked at the dissertation and to sort of, I guess, familiarize ourselves with it a few weeks ago. And that was pretty interesting. I did like to kind of Interesting to have this kind of look at this historical development of, you know, this period in time where it seems like philosophy and the natural sciences are still sort of the same, you know, body without organs or whatever, if you will, you know, before they sort of split off into these different, different routes. So that was kind of interesting to really dive into Marx in motion with you specifically. My take or my interpretation, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I felt like perhaps primitive accumulation was sort of maybe the connective tissue throughout the entire book because you're that's kind of you're really focusing on this appropriative nature of capitalism so if you feel like that's perhaps a good place to start i would certainly follow your lead there as far yeah. as uh, the kind of spine for where we can jump off from to me absolutely primitive accumulation really is kind of it's one of the main axes of for me interpreting marx and might say it's the second axis. The first one is motion because Marx, not because just, I mean, obviously I'm interested in this question for lots of reasons we can talk about, but just because Marx says it explicitly, like I'm not, you know, like I'm not forcing Marx to say anything here. I paid really close attention to the German, to the primary language, to the background and, you know, where he's coming from leading up to capital and so on. And Marx is very clear in capital that his whole study, he says, it's a study of the form der Bewegung, the forms of motion. That's what he's studying. That's it. He wants to understand the laws of movement. See, these are direct quotes from Marx. He's like, that's what I'm interested. This book is a study of the laws of motion of capital. It is a study of the forms of motion. You know, I think people maybe take that metaphorically or just pass over it. It's like, oh yeah, he's just, he's just understanding capital. It's like, well, no, he's not just understanding capital. He wants to understand it in a very specific way. He wants to understand it from a materialist perspective. He's clear in the post face about that. He wants to understand it from the perspective of patterns of movement. Now, the way the book is built, and he says this, you know, because he's responding to people who are, you know, in, in one of the prefaces, he's to capital, he's responding to people saying like, oh, Marx, this is totally opaque. The workers can't even understand this book. Like, why'd you have to start it like this? I mean, it's so hard. And Marx is like, well, look, dialectically, I had to do it. You know, like he's got this explanation. He's like, I realize that it's not the easiest way to start this. And of course, that's the Grundrisse is maybe a little bit easier way to start this. In Capital, it really just, it just hits the ground with these like 
really big concepts um, and a complete dialectical treatment of the emergence of value, which is fundamental, but it's very complicated. But what he's removing from it entirely is history. He's just talking about the conceptual sort of dialectic of how value emerges, but he's not really talking about it historically. Now, I do think there is a parallel history to talk about with the emergence of value, but Marx doesn't there. And he says, though, in the preface, or one of them, he says, you know, the mode of inquiry differs in the mode of presentation. That's not obvious what that means, but what he means there is that he's presenting us capital. He's going to present us in a very conceptual way. He's going to show us the concepts that traverse, that are common among all of these various aspects of capital. He's going to give us the kind of common features. But the mode of inquiry, he says, is actually historical. And so the book ends about history. So that's primitive accumulation, which is to say just the origins and transition from feudalism to capitalism, which happened through, so I should say, for people who don't know, but Marx has a few passages where he says that, you know, primitive accumulation is basically, and he gives a laundry list of things, but it's essentially colonialism and extractivism. It's the way that capital goes into a place and just steals. It's just theft, it's murder, slavery, genocide, all of these things. He's like, it's just brute violence is what it is. And that's the condition for capitalism. That is a condition for the transition from feudalism to capitalism. It is also the sort of key aspect that leads to the reproduction and spread of capitalism. Once capital emerges in England, then you can see that it basically goes through all the same basic activities again, but in each colonial context, whether this Ireland or Australia, Africa, it's just going to those places and it's doing the same motions again. You get that at the very end of Capital, where he says primitive accumulation is this, it's historically primary, but conceptually, it's not built into chapter one in, the, in an explicit way because it's like the thing that gets the concepts going in the first place. It's the thing that gets us there historically. But once it already happens, then we look back and conceptualize all the features. Does that make sense? So there's two ways of looking at it. And what I wanted to do in this book is say, look, if we want to understand the patterns of motion, the forms of motion of capital, we have to look and think about the way that primitive accumulation, which is just, just say theft, violence, murder, and you know extraction, in which all of those explain in a way that Marx doesn't put it into that first chapter, they explain how we get from use value to value. Because he has a very technical explanation, which is the most right. difficult part of chapter one of like how we get from use value to value and all the stages that it goes through conceptually. But those are also historical stages that all that went through. But he's not talking about it historically. So I wanted to make that first chapter grounded in history and in violence. Because, I mean, this is a very key idea just to come back also, because you mentioned it, anti-Oedipus. But Deleuze and Guattari and anti-Oedipus, they call it a cosmic swindle, the relationship between use value and value. Like, what exactly is that relationship? That's a big question. How do you use value is just, you know, Marx gives it to everything. He says in the manuscripts that, you know, that plants and the sun, there's a, they have a use value. They use one another. And the earth, he says, has all these use values. So it's not just humans that use things. Using just means you affect and are affected by something. You're just engaging with it in some way, such that Marx can even attribute it to plants and the earth and the sun and all of these things. But then how do you get from that, which is just to say the metabolisms of the world using and feeding off each other and, you know, and generating waste and living off of that waste, basically just how do you go from metabolic transhistorical use value to value? There's no rational explanation. It's not like there's not some a priori thing of just like, well, if you've got this much use value, then right. it translates into this much value. Deleuze and Guattari, really, I think they understand something that many Marxists don't, which is that it's a cosmic swindle. There is no relationship. Value is a complete metaphysical abstraction. There's nothing like value in the world. 
it's an abstract idea. And so Marx likens it to God and theological and, you know, he likens it to ghosts and all of these kind of phantasmic characters because value is quantity without quality. It's a measurement of abstract labor time. Labor time, regardless of who's doing it, how they're doing it, when they're doing it, where they're doing it, no qualities matter except the unit of time that measures it. And Marx is like, there's no basis for that in reality, except to say, but we know that it's not actually transcendent, just like we know God's not actually transcendent. We want to look at the forms of motion, that primitive accumulation, which and the forms of motion are primitive accumulation. You know, first, that's the first stage of that gets the forms of motion going. Nobody wants to go to the city and sell their living activity for money for 12 hours a day. Like they'll only do it if you force them by stealing their land and threatening them with murder. That's how capitalism happens. And then it gets obscured afterward by all these various labor theories of value and like, oh, this is a completely rational system of self-interest and exchange. And it's like bullshit. It's all premised on violence and theft. I think that's the cosmic swindle is to like take anything and assign a quantity to it as if that quantity bore any real relationship to that thing that you somehow captured like, oh, that's how much forest is worth. (laughs) You know, like there's going to be some like green capitalist answer to like, well, instead of zero, let's just give it a larger value than zero and maybe we'll get a better environmental outcome. And (laughs) Marx is going to say, no, there just is no value of a forest. There's no economic value in Marx's terms. There's no economic value of anything. Nothing has any economic value. The only way you get economic value is by somebody forcibly asserting that it is the case that there is economic value, that there is this thing called abstract labor time. And nobody nobody's going to spontaneously believe that. It has to be forced on them. And I think that's the part that primitive accumulation plays. It explains that transition in a way that the labor of theory of value basically just hides the history of colonial violence and primitive accumulation. That was a great way, I think, of getting to my, I guess, clarification of, I I wasn't quite sure in reading the text how this wasn't a metaphysical theory of motion, but a historical methodology. So I think you kind of went in that direction. And then also as this What I think is interesting, too, is you kind of discussed this process of primitive accumulation hasn't, well, I guess you're not the only one to do this, right? But that it's still, you know, it's an ongoing process that continues to to this very day, which I think is interesting, not only in terms of, I guess, the physical world, but right, it seems like this process is even getting extended to the digital or the virtual world. Things like meta and all these sort of... um, ways that value is being generated, you know, blockchain, you know, there's infinite ways that this is just another level of colonialism, you know, and accumulation of the digital commons, let's say. I don't know how that strikes you at all. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's everywhere. And I think that is, even though Marx spends that chapter on primitive accumulation, just talking about the transition from feudalism to capitalism in England, the chapters on colonialism are really, unfortunately, very short in capital because there's a lot more to say that, you know, kind of post-colonial Marxist theorists have done a lot more work to spell out. But to me, the consequence seems pretty obvious that the same thing happened, the same basic structure of primitive accumulation that happened in England is going to happen in every colony and in everywhere else. Everywhere where capital is invested in, in a new in a new market where it wants to set up shop and start insisting on this kind of, you know, profit relationship and insisting on this thing called value, it has to do it by violence and force. Nobody spontaneously wants that. And so I think that's true in every aspect. I mean, I think it's like digital for sure. Any place where anything free is happening, where people are just freely exchanging anything, ideas or, you know, 
it is a source. It's a source. It's their use values that are just waiting for capital to come in and you know stamp them with some kind of value, whatever arbitrary value that might be. And nobody's going to just spontaneously think that it has this kind of capitalist value. It's going to have to be and typically is stolen from them or bought from them or, right. you know. For me, and granted, you know, just to be completely transparent, I've not read, I've not delved into capital, at least not directly, you know, I've read like a million citations, of course, but I think for me, value itself has been one of the most challenging concepts, not only just in Marx's work, but even, you know, in Deleuze and Guattari with specifically, I guess, even surplus value, surplus value of code, surplus flux, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like this has been things that I just like have had a huge issue with trying to like ground myself in. I don't know if I want to necessarily get into that discussion, like right at this juncture of the podcast, but I do think that in my reading of, of Marx in Motion, I get the impression that surplus is what is appropriated from, I guess you would say, you know, women, the colonies, etc., the earth, basically. So that being like the source of a surplus value. But then again, on the on the other side, I kind of understand that for Deleuze and Guattari, like there's this differential relation between, I guess, like wage labor and surplus uh, and finance capital. And, and that sort of being this relationship that generates a surplus of code or, I, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm out of my depth a little bit there, but I just wanted to bring that up briefly. They're merging a bunch of things, but one of them is Bataille, interestingly, into, you know, into Bataille's kind of reading of Marx. And part of that has to do with excess. And so going from the quote in chapter one, where Marx says that use values are essentially, they're any, any, any desire whatsoever, regardless, whether it's of the mind or the stomach or whatever, however we come to desire them. Marx says there's no limit. There's no limit to what the world or humans, there's no limit to what we can desire. So desire always outstrips whatever values assigned or whatever had happened in the past, there's always going to be this generation. And I think that's a point where Deleuze and Guadri are like, yeah, you know, with Marx, even though they're not citing that passage, I think that's one of the, one of the basic ideas that happens on page one of Capital really is just like that desire is, is primary. And that's what use value is. It's just desires construed very broadly, but their desires, wants, wants and needs, regardless of their origins or causes or whatever. And capital needs for that to be the case because it feeds on those new desires. So those are like, whatever right. is assigned a value, desire will always outstrip whatever that assigned activity is. And whenever capital says, oh, we've now commodified and given economic value to a bunch of use values that can now be exchanged and so on, there's always new use values that will emerge. And that's just, you know, that's just culture, but it's also nature. And nature's culture is to just constantly be generating novelty and new desires and new relationships. And it's for capital, it's just, it's a kind of indefinite feed that yeah. it's always there to like feed on it and just wait for novelty, new ideas or new practices, new digital, new people, new whatever to be there to, to codify it. And I think that's the that's the moment where it's it's able to kind of codify that surplus and give that surplus desire some value. I guess that kind of ties to, you know, the way that they discuss how capitalism displaces its internal limits. Mm -hmm. I guess the mechanism for that, at least seemingly, would be, you know, these this ability of desire to kind of it's almost like what the machinic ah from Guattari. My favorite things of Lacan are the the seminar twenty where he starts getting into topology. Yeah, yeah, same, exactly. Uh, In my mind, I'm... that's where he gets close. He's like, he's getting exactly. very close because he's realizing that the connection between the symbolic imaginary and real 
he's realizing that's not quite as hard and fast as he might have thought. And then it, it becomes destabilized. The Borromean rings are the first step of that, where he's like thinking about them as kind of, oh, they're separate, but interlocking. And then in topology and not theory, he gets even closer where you can see he's like, oh, well, they're actually just sort of dimensions or, or aspects of the same topological surface just folded over. And then I think it's not too far off before you have to sort of abandon these as like really serious philosophical categories, the symbolic imaginary and the real. But I, I mean, I don't think he gets there. And obviously, Lacanians would really never want to give up on that. That's kind of where my head went when you mentioned knots as far as kind of the the folding of, of matter mm -hmm. onto one another. Yeah, that's where I start for sure is more on that kind of the folds and flows. And I know that, I mean, you know, part of that's inspired for sure by Antipas, but I mean, you know, Deleuze and Guattari weren't, they were not the ones, first ones to start thinking about flows or folds for that matter. You know, that goes to Bergson and Merleau-Ponty. And then way before that is Lucretius for sure. I mean, you can hardly read a passage in that book without having him talk about flows and weaving and threads and folds. And I mean, it's a very fluid kind of ontology that you get in Lucretius. And I think that might have attracted Deleuze, but I, I think Deleuze quite honestly didn't spend the kind of time that it would have been interesting to see him write, you know, right. a book. Yeah, Although, a monograph, I, you know, right? Yeah, it would have been interesting to see a monograph if he took the time to kind of read the Latin. I'm not totally sure that it would have, I would have agreed with it, but I would have liked to see him engage with it more at least. But I think he would have found a lot of interest in all the pleas and plexes and, and folding going on there. The next bullet point I had set up was something on time. I don't know if, if you could speak to that because I feel like time and motion, there's got to be some type of imminent relation there. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just kind of spitballing. You know, cinema one and two, I think, might immediately kind of where my head went is like maybe these would be interesting works to look at in dialogue with this, you know, concept of motion. Rob Lezecki, I think is how you said his. He and Dan are editing a collection on Deleuze and the philosophy of time that'll be out with Edinburgh, I think, this year. And they invited me to contribute something. But I was like, you know, I, you know, just to be clear here, like I think Deleuze ends up actually, this is kind of a bit of a beef I have with Deleuze, is that time is really very important to Deleuze in a way that it remained important for a very the whole post-Kantian tradition is kind of really connected with time, in right. part because yeah. of Heidegger's influence. I think there's no way that Heidegger's reading of time and Kant didn't influence Deleuze's reading of Kant and his thinking about time, because he always mentions Kant when he writes about time almost. And in the cinema books, he really shows his cards that like, it's all about, I mean, they're two different images. And in the end, they're kind of the same, you know, like he always ends up collapsing the two again, but he doesn't never holds them really radically apart. But I think he does, especially difference in repetition and the cinema too. He really ends up privileging time over motion. And I think that that's, I think it's partly, it influences his reading of Bergson, where he's always thinking about duration and time. But the thing is, Bergson Oh, well, there's so much to say here, but I think they're really also with respect to Marx, there are real political consequences here too, in terms of reading Marx, because I think Marx is much more Aristotelian. And in the dissertation, Marx is just absolutely explicit. He says there's nothing but matter in motion. And he says it's absolute imminent motion. That's Marx's ontology. And that motion, of course, is the swerve. It's indeterminate, absolute movement. Now, what is time then? For Aristotle, and I mean, for most of the ancients, it's not just Aristotle, like really up until Kant, time is just a measure of motion. And I think that's what Marx thinks time is. Time is, you know, when capitalists measure time. There's some other great quote. I'm trying to remember this really awesome quote about time. It like makes time by sort of destroy. Anyway, 
for Marx, I think that's what capital is. Capital is very much a philosophy of time in which time just becomes something that you can quantify abstractly in a way that other things don't yield in the same way. Time is kind of qualityless in its abstraction. You could just talk about a sequence. Yeah. And it's like, well, a sequence of what? Well, a sequence of anything. A unit of what? A unit of anything. And that kind of quantitative time lends itself to that quantitative dimension. And capital, I think, runs with that in a way that's completely consistent with all those post-Kantian philosophies of time. Anyway, it also has to do with stasis, because if time isn't the measure of motion, if time is ontologically fundamental, sorry, I'm answering the question, but uh, maybe we should maybe we should wait. But the point is, I do, I do, I do think, I do think it is quite important the idea of time, both politically and ontologically, and there's a lot at stake. And I think it's a great demonstration sociologically. When you look at how many books there are by philosophers dedicated to the philosophy of time and on every topic you can imagine, like type in philosophy of time and see what happens, and you're going to get a huge list. Now type in the philosophy of movement and you're going to get nothing but probably right. my works because nobody's, write, nobody's writing about it. There's not much of a history of writing about it either. Now, of course, philosophers, every one of them has said something about movement, but none of them really think that it's primary. People don't write books on the philosophy of movement like they write books on the philosophy of time. That's just due partly to Kant and Heidegger's and that legacy. And Deleuze is really part of that legacy, even though he has lots of other cool ways that he, do, he does things. It is in Difference and Repetition where he says that time is a static genesis. It's that fourth, fourth type of time that is static. And that's what he says in Logic of Sense. It's a static genesis. Time is completely static. He's getting this out of Whitehead, honestly. I think this is part of Whitehead that ends up in, it's a mix of Bergson and Whitehead, but the part that's Bergsonian, he picks up on his duration. But it's complicated because here he's leaving something out. Bergson really says in his last collection of essays, the last published book, which is like a collection of essays of his, he says, duration is just movement. And I mean, like, well, what is it? You know, is it time or is it movement, Bergson? Like, make up your mind. I think ultimately Bergson really wants, he just thinks there's a continual transformation of everything. And sometimes he'll call it duration. But in those essays, he explicitly says, all I mean by duration is movement. But why is Bergson not read as a philosopher of movement as regularly as he's read as a philosopher of time and duration? It's an interesting, you know, it's a sociological observation about how much philosophers have actually really thought about time versus motion. And I think it's partly a post-Kantian reaction to the ancient world where they're like, time isn't just a measure of movement. Time is like more primary than movement. Anyway, yeah. that's the big historic in the West, at least. I think that's the big historical, you know, ancient world where movement is more primary than time. And then post-Kant where time is more primary than movement. Right. I kind of jokingly made a post yesterday on Twitter that was something like, um, it's been game over since clocks were in invented. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm really getting at with that joke is that I'm interested in the relationship between time for someone like, let's say in Epicurus or Lucretius, what is time for them as opposed to us in modern society where it's like, because it feels like that material relation in itself has to be dramatically different. And the consequences of that also, you know, subsequently are dramatically different, right? Because time is right. It's a lot more deterritorialized or like there's a lot more, I guess, it's a lot more open, right? When you don't have this like strict counting the seconds and the microseconds. And, you know, I don't even know how far clocks are, you know, atomic clocks and so forth that measure things down to the nanosecond or beyond. So I think there's something yeah. to something to be said there as far as something like agency or, you know, what are the stakes for humanity whenever 
the relationship to time itself becomes more draconian, let's say, or like once time begins to really, when things are really chopped up into these impossibly small units, you know, there's something that happens to us, I think, and it has political implications. But we can stop there and let Taylor join us. Thomas, speaking of time, I am not on time. (laughs) You swerved when you should have collided, bro. It's good to see you, Taylor. It's been like, God, how many years has it been? Has it been like 15 or 20 years? It was, was it in 2008 or so, 2007, 2008, when we hung out in Claremont? I don't remember, but that sounds about right. So almost 15 years, I think. It's been almost 15 years when you, me, Joe and Kieran got to hang out in Claremont. That was a conference on Deleuze and Whitehead and maybe Badu. I think it was, yeah, Badu. Because yeah. I remember like being an event was sort of just very recently translated. That's right. And yeah. Oliver Felton was there and I was really excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, I really want to talk to him about Badu. Because <laughs> like well, it's not like Badu was light reading. And I had all these Kieran and I had so many questions and yeah, you know, probably were just, you know, over-eager graduate students. But I remember being very impressed with you and Joe, and I mean that your website, Fractal Ontology it's amazing you've kept it going for this long and it's so cool i've been following it for 15 years i think it's it's more of an archive now and you know joe is he's kind of off doing his his own stuff i bet he has all kinds of writing he could put up but i think he maybe fell off the blogosphere i know that was kind of a it was more of a cool thing 15 years ago to do i mean the last time i put stuff on fractal it was for bootleg translations And so I do think what's interesting about that, one of the things I remember very clearly speaking of, because I was thinking about your critique of Deleuze and at some point we got to get to it. I I do want to hear more about critiquing a little bit of the idealism that you point out in um, the essay on the simulacrum, right? The the appendix. I want to flag that and, and get to that later if you haven't already covered it. But I do remember very clearly Oliver Feltham and Justin Clemens, they both spoke at the conference. I'm not going to pin it on him because it could have been Oliver. Maybe it was Oliver or Justin, but they were, I think, parroting, not parodying, but parroting. Like they were repeating what Badu was saying from Clamor of Being about Deleuze being a thinker of the one. And I remember kind of responding a little bit, not like antagonistically, but saying, what about counter-effectuation? What about the anti-God, the anti-Do that is brought up? And really now I would say something more like, what about, you know, N minus one, where it is precisely the transcendent instance that's subtracted. But I guess that was an exciting time, though, that conference and getting to, uh, even if Joe's paper was sort of all over the place like we were and just kind of exploring things. I remember he got some question about love that he couldn't answer. And I quoted some bullshit from anti-Oedipus, <laughs> right? About love being an index of the libidinal investments of the social field and all this <laughs> shit, right? Like just, it was just a time. And so now to like fast forward and we're in 2022 and seeing, you know, as you were mentioning, when I jumped into the call, this notion that there are all these philosophers of time, but there aren't these philosophers of motion. And I really thought that your point about Bergson, his last works where he kind of says no as you point out if immobility is first and then somehow motion comes out afterwards we never get to it it is that Zeno's paradox thing so it has to have already been there and I thought that that's kind of an intuitive argument that makes a lot of sense and it kind of reiterates 
why you're focused on on motion, whether it be in terms of as you explore in terms of folds and, and well flows, folds and fields, whether it be in uh, in Marx's works, you know, going back to the dissertation, it really does make sense why you've kind of stuck with this idea and tr tried to really explore it in all the avenues. So for that, I think that that's something to, that, that still needs to be implemented. And, and we got to get out of the grip of Kant and Heidegger, right? That's kind of the last <laughs> thing I heard. <laughs> I was telling Cooper, he was asking a bit how I got into philosophy, but that same story is actually how I got into thinking about philosophy of movement too, is actually, mm. so I was, I was doing environmental justice activism in Eugene when I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And then I got a Fulbright to go to Canada to work with the migrant justice group. No one is illegal. I was basically just doing activism for a year and, you know, studying and reading political theory at night. I mean, it was really living the dream there for a while. One of the things that came out of that project was realizing pretty quickly that there was a serious lack of political theory about movement and migration. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote the political books, the figure of the migrant and theory of the border. Yeah. And then because as I was doing it, I was discovering all these other things. I was like, well, why is it that Aristotle hates migrants and refugees so much? Like, what's his problem with them? His justifications is, well, they're too mobile. They don't stay in the same place. They're always mm -hmm. moving around. And, you know, among many other things, they don't speak Greek. That's a problem with them too. But I was realizing that these are the same kinds of prejudices that many nationalists still have about migrants. Oh, they're too mobile. They don't speak the language. They're, they're not fully political. They're not capable of political speech and agency. Right. And I was realizing that Aristotle's cosmology really kind of echoes that same idea, the unmoved mover. He's unmoved. That's mm -hmm. why he's the center and moves everything else. And then I was realizing also at the same time, I'm like, oh, wow, this really matches up with Aristotle's metaphysics. And then also this really matches up with the Greek city-state architecturally. The urban planning is completely based on this kind of centralized model of the polis. And then the center of the polis being the Acropolis, where the god, where the goddess, you know, Athena resides. And it's this very kind of concentric circles. And the Greeks imagined that they were at the center of political life and rationality and reason that knowledge always happens in the cities. And Socrates says, trees and outside the city is nothing to teach me. I never yep. need to leave the yep. city. Yeah, Socrates never needs to leave the city because he doesn't need to be migratory. He doesn't need to be in the countryside mm. talking with different people. He just can be in the city the whole time and understand the whole universe because he's positioned geographic. Anyway, I was realizing all these resonances between the arts and sciences. And I was like, whoa, this is way too big. I cannot possibly put this in the figure of the migrant book. This is really a bunch of books looking at all the dimensions, the ways yeah. that the Western tradition has been very phobic about matter and movement. And so that's the other thing is the connection with materiality and movement internal to the Western tradition. It's always this source of anxiety and therefore repression. The people who move too much, the things who move too much, things that can't be stabilized, in short, becoming, process. Right. It's just something that's really unstable that isn't fully tamed. It poses epistemological problems. It poses ontological, aesthetic, political. These are all the dimensions that I was seeing. And then it raised this question for me. I was like, whoa, if this is what is going on, if we could read the history of Western civilization as a history of the domination of motion, of kind of trying to explain why things move, nobody wants to say, we don't know. Things just move. That's unsatisfying to everybody, every scientist, every philosopher. You can't just say things move indeterminately and we don't know why. And there really is no higher explanation. Mm -hmm. Nobody is satisfied. And that is the project is to explain what is a constant source of antagonism and disruption 
which is that things move and we don't really know why entirely, why or how or what they'll move in the future. And that matter is this, as Aristotle says, a logon, right? We can't even say anything about matter. Mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. we can't, it's a oriston. It has no limits, no boundaries. It's indeterminate. And he says, just has a couple pages in the physics where he's like, no, we can't say anything about this. And let's move on to form where we can really talk about stuff. When we got form, we can talk about form and how it shapes matter and molds it and all these right. things. But matter is totally passive, and that is the place that it's been in dominantly. And it sent me on this other trajectory, which is who in the Western tradition really thought that movement was indeterminate. And we just don't know what it will do. And we can't know in principle because it is ontologically, not epistemologically, like, oh, we're just limited because we're finite and we who knows what things will be. But ontologically, it is indeterminate. And there's only, to my mind, I mean, I'm open to hearing whatever you all think or anybody thinks, because I've taught many classes trying to investigate what Western thinkers in this tradition have really identified motion as a primary aspect. Now, of course, there's things in quantum physics too, but I think Lucretius, Marx, and Virginia Woolf actually are the ones in my mind. Bergson gets very close to, and I, in the <coughs> end, I know I, I say one thing about him in being in motion, but I do think his vitalism it does kind of hold him back in a way that he gets very, very close. And I love Bergson, but I think his vitalism is, I don't know how to situate that. And it's too problematic. Marx is not a vitalist and he just doesn't have that kind of metaphysical leaning. Anyway, I'll stop. But that's no, how I got is, into the Lucretius stuff and Marx. This, this is great. And, and we'll come back to this because you do point out in the opening of Marx in Motion, one of the three things you want to correct, one of them being the vitalist aspects of contemporary philosophy and, and sort of getting us away from that. And maybe that's easier than the others, like the anthropocentric side of the early writings. But before we get to that, I was also thinking about how, well, first, I, I, I still am curious if you're, if you're going to write a book on Bergson that you mentioned in Being in Motion. You can say yes or no. And, and Short answer, no. That's but okay. It's for, the, it's for this reason. I mean, I, again, I, yes. I'm, it always comes back. I always, when every time I read Bergson, I always get excited and I love it. But in the end, I'm like, maybe I'll teach a seminar on matter and memory. And I always get, I get excited. And then the vitalism, I just, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it's holding me back because I have other projects. I think if I yes. don't have anything else going, I might write something on Bergson, but I don't think he's of the same commitment in the end, ultimately, as Wolf, Marx, and Lucretius. And it all comes down to the indeterminacy of movement with yeah. no, no higher explanation. <laughs> There's no vital force because Bergson in the end, he still also has God, even if God is pure creativity. Sorry, this should have been a one word answer. No, I'm no, not going to write a book on Bergson. <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's similar to Whitehead then too, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, he, it, mm -hmm. that puts him more on the side of Whitehead, thinking of God as this kind of creative potentiality or, or however you, you want to say it. And what's, what's interesting too, I didn't know until reading your book, because it's never cited in the literature I've read. Maybe I'm not a Bergson scholar, so I, obviously I would know this if I were. I didn't know that his first book was this reading of, you know, on nature, Lucretius' poem. Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't realize that. And that was something cool. That kind of means he straddles the two traditions that sort of that really get it and that almost get it right. Whitehead, one of them being obviously with the occasionalism and these other things. I think this is probably the context in which when Cooper and I were, were speaking with Graham Harmon that maybe you came up as I was asking something about uh, his kind of weird or dark occasionalism and Whitehead came up and I think that he sort of mentioned, you know, he brought you up and obviously had high praise for you, but he's doing his own thing. And, and that's something that we can leave aside. But I was thinking not to get into to Harmon's work, 
I was thinking about the fact that you were mentioning Aristotle and his, I guess you can call it kinophobia, right? His sort of, his <laughs> weirdness towards movement. And yet at the same time, I, I always thought of Aristotle and Nietzsche having this weird relationship because of the peripatetic school, right? That Aristotle always supposedly, maybe this is apocryphal, but supposedly taught while moving and Nietzsche, you know, having his psychologist, the psychologist in him wanting to condemn thinking sitting down, which I am doing right now, but you know, <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I always thought like, oh, well, that's at least one good thing about Aristotle is the peripatetic, but I guess that's maybe just a false movement or maybe just Maybe just a, um, it would get back to this hylomorphism, right? Where matter is passive and the form is, is fully active. And it kind of contaminates most of uh, philosophy for over 2000 years, right? Just as, just as like Euclid's parallel lines postulate, right? You know, contaminates thinking for 2000 years because it's, because it seems to work too well, all too well. There's so much to say, but I will say that I actually really like Aristotle's definition of movement in the physics. It's so good. I think he really gets movement right in the physics. He gives such a great definition of what it is. It's basically like a process as a process. Like movement is the, it's the movement of the, of the movement. You're like, yeah, that's it. Great. You know, like without, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not strictly subordinated to the beginning and the end. It's the in-betweenness that doesn't, that's not defined by either start or finishing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, but uh, yeah, a process as a process. There we go. That's a great definition. But the problem really is that like he does it on both ends. He's got, you know, he's got matter, which is totally indeterminate. And then he's got God, which is completely static. That's right. the, the philosophical basis. I'd be like, and the fact that indeterminacy, he's just going to give up on and say it's totally passive. That's bad on that pole. And on the other pole, no, God, he says God's totally static. So in the end, yes, there is movement. Yes, he's got a great definition, but it's subordinated on both sides where matter is passive and God or pure form is totally active. And so it's unfortunately kind of in the middle that it gets captured and locked in. And you're right, that definition, it does end up getting, you know, when people cite it, it ends up kind of being similarly captured by something else. But he does have a great difference. And the peripatetic activity, I mean, you know, it's the same true, same is true with Socrates and Plato, like Socrates walked around and mm -hmm. Plato has, you know, the academy and academy just meant like grove of trees. It was a right. sacred grove of trees to Athena. And that's where his students would meet and, you know, they would walk around. And I mean, you know, the Stoics walked around. I do think walking is, I think there's something intuitive that walking, and I mean, this is just what the studies on this activity show precisely, is that walking increases creative thinking by 60%. So these oh. are peer-reviewed studies. You often read, if you just go Google, is walking good for thinking? And you'll see a bunch of studies that have tried this and they've said, oh yeah, it is good for your brain. It's good for yeah. your thinking. It does actually improve cognitive ability to go walk versus sitting. But they never say how. And it's mm -hmm. only in 2014 that I read this paper that said exactly how. And they're like, actually, walking decreases your analytical reasoning very slightly, like 5%. Oh. And it increases your creative, free associative thinking by 60%. Now, I'm not saying Aristotle, I'm not saying anybody knew that particular statistic, but I do think it's intuitive that walking is very good for conversation and all of the studies on conflict resolution and kind of conversations, they're spontaneous, like an interview, like we're doing. It's like one topic leads to another, leads to another, and you just kind of organically go in that way. And it leads to lots of interesting creative ideas and associations in a way that just like, let's listen to a professor lecture at us for two hours, which is like how we often teach philosophy classes. That's awful. You're more likely to hold attention 
have students remember what's going on if you're outside and walking and moving around. In mm -hmm. any case, I think there might have been an intuitive and I think even just like a, a long legacy of poets, Homer and Hesiod mm -hmm. and the poets of walking and meter and rhythm. That's kind of already, it's a pre-classical archaic tradition that was kind of like many things like mythology and poetry that were what people gravitated for. This is how you know things. And then you have that classical Greek tradition, which is kind of taking it up still in some ways, the way that Socrates invokes his mythology and whatever, but then totally criticizes the existence of the gods and undermines mythology as a way of knowing, but then also performatively gives us all these myths about, you know, epistemology and so on. I think they walk for that reason. There is something good about it, but I think that they walk in order to sort of subordinate that in the same way that like, you know, Plato... I don't know if you all have read that book that's called, it's a book that discovered, um, hold on a second, I've got it on my shelf. Uh, no problem. The Immortality Key. Okay. Oh, heard okay, it. if you haven't, oh, if you hadn't read this. So, I mean, it was on the New York Times bestselling list for a while, but this is awesome. This guy finally finds evidence, the mysteries of Eleusis in the classical world, the longest standing Greek religious ritual activity. People were essentially taking ergot, the basis of LSD. Yes, yes, yes. This was a theory like Gordon Wasson and, you know, Carl Ruck, you know, they wrote a book about it, the road to Eleusis, and they said it, but like, they didn't have any actually hard evidence. They had lots of contextual, archaeological, but they didn't yeah. actually have any evidence of what was in that, you know, kookie on the little chalice. And now this guy basically found apparently the study, it, he didn't do the study, but the study was done um, actually in Spain, where there was like a reproduction of the Eleusis mystery. In any case, they basically found direct in the teeth of the people and in the chalice remnants of ergot. So what this means effectively is that for 2000 years, people have been taking LSD and almost everybody was an initiate of these mysteries. Plato was doing it, you know, Aristotle, like all of these guys, Epicurus, they were all initiates, but with their experience of it, okay, I'm, now this is like a really a rabbit hole. Feel free to edit this. No, out. I love it. I love it. I love it. But the, the experience they underwent was extremely physical, embodied, material, performative. The whole structure was very ritualistic. But then the conclusions out of it are extremely idealistic. Pythagorean universal forms. Right. But I mean, closed eyes visuals on psychedelics produce these kind of geometrical shapes. And it's not outrageous to think that they would see those shapes and come up with the forms. I'm just saying that that so to me, that right. is a really difference. But think about the performative difference where like, Plato and Aristotle, and they're, they're, they're going into the dark and closing their eyes on LSD, whereas you have indigenous traditions like in Mexico and South mm -hmm. America, where it's not done in the same way. It's often with eyes open and you're surrounded by like jungle. It's much more sort of in the middle of a forest, not necessarily in a dark chamber or even underground like it would have been for many of these ancient Greeks. So they're getting a different experience. And you also have the influence of certain Orphic ideas of immortality and, and ideas of pure forms. Anyway, I think this is all historically related in a way that it would take a lot more work to show all of this. But I think this immortality key book is very important as the first evidence, hard evidence that we have that it was absolutely psychedelics that they were eating and that there's no way that that was not connected, especially since Plato very clearly says he describes, you know, in a limited way, but he describes his experiences of Eleusis. It's obviously had some profound experiences there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm thinking of I'm mixing up my my Plato dialogues, but there's the dialogue, obviously, where he he discusses all the the primordial forms and shapes, the triangles and tetrahedrons. Um, and, Timaeus, yeah, yeah, the Timaeus. Thank you. Good. So it makes sense that that would be a product of of this sort of this LSD 
ergotamine tartrate or whatever it is that the ergot is is a fungus that grows on like rye. I haven't read the book, but I know about this kind of research stuff for my own purposes, you know, for my own interest in psychedelics. And there have even been some interesting historical hypotheses that like certain mass hysterias outbreaks of madness have been actually the consumption of of ergotamine tartrate, this kind of proto-LSD without anyone knowing. You know, it's one thing to be initiated into the into the mystery cults. It's another thing to just spontaneously ingest psychedelics. Anyway, I, I think all of that is fascinating and, and makes sense. It's interesting what you said about the research about reducing some of the analytic thinking, because it's precisely, even if it is important for us to use words and ways in which we are clear about, you know, meaning there is a way in which that analytic mindset, if it is the dominant one, can then, as you're kind of pointing out, lock in or take on this, I mean, it's what Guattari talks about, like the imperialism of language, right? It can kind of become this controlling mechanism rather than something more what Freud is working with, for example, with with his, his key idea about free association or even or even someone that, that you admire, like Virginia Woolf, and the kind of writing around the time that was popular with like the stream of consciousness and these other things. So it is interesting to think that maybe tamping down the analytic and ramping up some of the creative in our, you know, the left brain, right brain war, right? You know, it's, it is kind of interesting that that research would show that in, in terms of the, you know, taking a walk is, is good, for the, good for the body and the mind. This even goes to, you know, a, a schizo on a walk is a better model than a yes. neurotic on a couch. Too. That's right. Yes. That's right. But th- this also takes me to like, just to like really get out there, <laughs> this would go back to, I guess, in Dune in particular, which Deleuze and Guattari cite in A Thousand Plateaus, I think in the nomadology about walking without rhythm, right? <laughs> mm. Yes, that's right. Just for a little kind of fun note. But yeah, that goes to the nomad, which I think, you know, Thomas and I were discussing a little bit earlier about borders and the figure of the nomad relative to Aristotle and so forth. So anyways, and the not nomo- to divert us too far. No, this is good. I mean, the, the nomos versus the polis, which is one of, you know, Deleuze's key figures, the difference between the concentric circles of the center of, of the city versus the undistributed. That's kind of where Deleuze gets the idea of there's two ways to to deal with space. One is where space is kind of cut up and divided and parceled out. And the other is, you know, distributing space itself. It, it is kind of the, Thomas, don't you even go into this in, in one of your, is it in being in motion? I'm trying to remember, or maybe it's in Marx's motion too, the, the sort of nomos polis division. Yeah, the, we're kind of talking oh. about that a little bit. Okay. Right? Well, we don't have to go back over it then. <laughs> I mean, I'm catching up. Yeah, I- I mention it in like almost every book because okay, I there think you go. It, there I, you like, go. honestly, it always comes up because I think it's really, really central, especially in that classical, that classical context, the nomos. Yeah. that So Deleuze gets it from this, uh, this philologist, Emmanuel LaRoche, who wrote right. a whole book. I mean, it's a short book and it's not translated into English, unfortunately, but it's a great book that just tracks the archaic it's on one usage. word, right? It's on one word etymology, right? Yeah. The ancient Greek, the roots of the ancient Greek word nem. N-E-M. Now there's a really great book and I'm forgetting the title of it, but it's a book that just came out by like a legal scholar, but it's a book that's all about, it's all about the nomos. Um, And it's the only English book that's really dives into the depths of that word, but it's a really important word for precisely that reason. So that root nem 
the way that Homer used it and the way that Hesiod used it, the way that people, the archaic Greeks before the classical period used it, it just meant LaRoche just says it's undivided. Okay, and that's yeah. and so that's what Deleuze runs with it. But there's another <laughs> sense that this guy, this other scholar has found for this word. It's also shared. It's undivided because it's like it's the commons, essentially, to bring this back yeah. to Marx. It's the commons that are shared by everybody. It's the pastures, it's the hills, it's the mountains, the forest. It's all of these areas outside of the polis that historically for the archaic Greeks, they were not owned by anybody. They were just used in a collective manner. So people just collectively manage those just like the commons had been managed. And it's not until you get this distinction between the polis. In classical Greece, you can see, and it's so dramatic and obvious that they change the word. The meaning of the word nem no longer means shared, undivided countryside. Now it means uh, law. And it always makes me kind of sad to see people like Agamben and, you know, Schmidt and other people talk about the nomos without any understanding of the philology and history of this word, because they start with a classical period. They don't understand. They've started right. in the wrong place and they can't get themselves to understand how that emerged in the first place. I mean, it's a beef I have in general with Agamben, who writes some great stuff. But on the other hand... Hey, we uh, are he... we are pro beef with the Agamben <laughs> Okay, uh... okay. Okay. <laughs> This is one of the many problems then I'll say with the Gombin is that his histories all start with the classic period. When you do that, you're starting with the end, in my opinion. The mm. end, everything interesting or many, many interesting things happen before you get to classical Greece. And the, the classical Greek project only makes sense as a response, reaction, and domination to the archaic and pre-classical sort of pre period. And I mean that leading up well until, I mean, not just the archaic Greeks, but I mean the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, the Egyptians. Yeah. Like if you, un you understand that larger context that the Greeks are are basically, you know, stamping and they're they're making a move to distinguish themselves, Euclid and Aristotle, they're really, they're trying to put the primacy on form over matter. And they're really moving away from a tradition of movement and more toward one of stasis. Not to say that those other traditions, Babylonian, Egyptian, don't have their own moves, but the Greeks really solidify that. So if you start with it, you've already started with the end where they've already systematically spent the early Greek philosophy just decimating and trying to decimate any residues of nature, of matter, of motion in their own ways. I'm not saying they don't invoke them. They're having all these ways of kind of crushing, crushing movement and explaining it away by something that doesn't move, something that's unchanging. This is good. And it's making me think about how, you know, one of the, obviously one of the philosophers that Marx goes back to is Picurus, and even though he dies in Athens and his parents are Athenian, he's he's not born in Athens, right? He's born on I think the island of of Samos, and same with like a lot of the Stoics in this period, in this post Aristotelian period, a lot of the philosophers that we have record of and, and keep up with are kind of foreign to the the Greek city state of of Athens, and they bring in some of that nomadic, you know tension that is that is being warded off right whether it be in the republic or as you mentioned earlier with aristotle's you know his xenophobia kinophobia however we want to describe it so what i really like about this going back to understand marx and you do this thorough reading of capital chapter one which is famously difficult compared to the rest of the book but you you put it in in this light of the dissertation, which for the longest time we we didn't really have access to, right? Isn't there this interesting history of 
Marxist publications, you know, I mean, the, at some point we didn't have access to the manuscripts, the economic and philosophical manuscripts, which, you know, Althusser even kind of pushes back against and the humanism that it may have brought about. And then, you know, this kind of second wave with this dissertation, which, you know, in my readings of the literature, besides your work, I haven't really seen mention of. I don't even know if Althusser had, had access to it. Do you know about the strange publication history and, and why it's so important to go back to this source, which seems to be just discarded out of the talk of, of communism or even what you call kinetic communism? So Althusser in his later writings does get around to reading the dissertation. You know, that's where he starts talking about aleatory materialism. So it wasn't available. The thing is, it was the first thing that Marx ever wrote other than some poetry that he wrote, (laughs) which I think is also significant that Marx started as a poet. I'm just saying (laughs) um, that he began as a poet and his first kind of love was the critique of religion. That was his real that was his real starting beef. He wasn't interested in the beginning in economics. He was interested in critiquing religion. And the source for that was the first critiques of religion, which were in Epicureanism and, Mm -hmm. you know, the atomist tradition. So he went to those and then he wrote his dissertation and then it basically wasn't, it wasn't published. It was, I'm sure, stored somewhere for a very Mm -hmm. long time and wasn't even available in German until the seventies. So when Althusser probably read this, he might've read it in German because I don't think there was a French translation of this text. He would have read it in German. And I think Deleuze also might have read it in German. It would have been available in German in the 1970s. And it's not until the, forgetting now, maybe, but it was later. It wasn't until much later that maybe like the 80s or 90s that it was available in English in the collected works. But when it was available in the collected works, it's like, you know, volume one of the collected works of Marx and Engels writing is like, $200. So available technically, yes, but not exactly very widely available. And it's not exactly like it's got a large, uh, like a bunch of Marxists are chomping at the bit to go read some philology on Greek language and Marx's translations in his notebooks where he just translates like just huge lines and sections of De Rerum Natura. It's like, they don't care about that, you know? And I think there's just, most Marxists don't care. And it's not like classic scholars care either. Why would they want to read what Marx had to say about any of this? Marx wasn't a classic scholar. He was whatever he was, you know? So they're not reading Marx as like a source, but Marx in the end, ultimately though, it's since been recognized that Marx was the first one to make the now accepted consensus that Democritus and Epicurus were different and they were different because of the swerve. That itself is more complicated because um, Marx is really relying there on some secondary commentaries on Epicurus because we don't have a single bit of Epicurus's writings about the swerve. It is not at all obvious. We have three letters from Epicurus. Everything else is commentary on Epicurus. And for those, we don't even fully know. In the end, ultimately, I think Epicurus probably did say something about a swerve, but we have the titles of all of Epicurus's books. 10 volumes, no, no, 30 volumes of his book on nature. None of those titles involve anything with the swerve. Mm -hmm. None of the topics suggest anything related to the necessity of the swerve. All we have are of a dedicated Roman writing around the same time as Lucretius. We have a Roman scholar named Philodemus writes once about the swerve, (laughs) uh, a periclesis, the Greek word periclesis. That word is never used by Epicurus, but we do see one of his followers mention that it was a thing Epicurus said one time. Now, (laughs) how do you go from there to anything else? I feel like you're making some serious interpretive leaps. And there's a whole lot of various reasons why people would have attributed that idea, because it's also possible that Epicurus 
never had the swerve, but maybe later on in his life came up with that idea to respond specifically to the Aristotelian criticism of free will. Because Democritus, everything is determined. It's a giant mm-hmm. vortex that we're all being sucked into. And then Epicurus, you know, is Aristotle critiques Democritus for not having any free will. And so it might have been a way for Epicurus to say, well, look, everything's determined, but humans get to have a little freedom because they've got this thing called the swerve. Now, is there any reason to believe that Epicurus had a systematic theory of the swerve or anything about the swerve that's not, I mean, because even Philodemus barely says anything about it. It's not in the three letters that Epicurus wrote that are like, here are the core teachings of my philosophy. Go Mm -hmm. out and learn what it's all about. There is not a single mention of the swerve. Now, if it's really an essential concept to his philosophy, why did he not mention it? His whole system works perfectly well without a swerve. You don't need it to understand Epicureanism. And yet the secondary commentary does include it. But these are also commenters that are writing after at Lucretius. So are they projecting? Right. And Lucretius right. attributes and you know says such wonderful things about Epicurus. It's easy to just say, Lucretius just said everything Epicurus did, and there's not a single scrap of novelty. You could have that kind of so-called fundamentalist reading. And I think that's the prevailing one. And I think to some degree, Marx falls into the camp a little bit when he basically kind of identifies Epicurus and Lucretius together. That would be some disagreement that I would have with Marx. But Marx's contributions, the novelty of them vastly outweigh. I will easily overlook that (laughs) when, when compared to the main contribution, which is that because in the dissertation, even though it's about Epicurus and Democritus, Marx cites Lucretius just as much as he does Epicurus. Yeah, he does. I've counted up all the citations and they are equal. He cites, and oftentimes when he says things about Epicurus, he then cites Lucretius. And you're like, Mm -hmm. well, he's just assuming they're saying the same thing, but I'm not sure that that's always the case. And, but here's the main contribution. If I was just going to sum it up very shortly of this is the big move. Marx takes the core ideas of Greek atomism. So the atom, the void, the fall, the swerve and the repulsion. Those are the core pieces. That's like the core pieces of the ontology. And then Marx says, the main problem, his disagreement is that people have interpreted these as like separate things. Like there's void and matter and void and matter are not the same. And the swerve, that's also a different thing that happens only occasionally. Mm -hmm. And Marx says, and he says like, Lucas is all there. He says it's all there, but I, he's very much taking a leap because I don't think this is all there in Epicurus, but he interprets it dialectically. Yes. And he says, actually, every one of these things, they are emergent properties of the same process. And he says very clearly that there are no atoms. The atoms disappear completely because they're in motion. It's right. the movement that undermines any kind of discreteness, any kind of stasis. It is the swerving, the constant swerving. It's not like it swerves over here and not over here. Lucretius is very explicit, and Marx is just following on this point, that matter is in the habit. It's a custom to constantly be swerving. So people think about the swerve. I mean, again, it's related to the modern European history where they're like, oh, humans can swerve because they're free and nothing else swerves. And, you know, also (laughs) God, let's put in God because God needs to be there too, or else they're going to burn us at the stake like they did Giordano Bruno. So they read Lucretius and then they stuck in God and they stuck in human freedom. And all that is very un- uh, is very predictable. They stuck in mechanism. Oh, it's all totally mechanical and causal and whatever. But that's just not there. It's just not there. And unfortunately, that has been that is the reception that happened in Europe to really a totally crazy idea that only Marx. I feel like I'm happy to be contradicted on this, but to my reading, only Marx up until Marx is the one who gets this right. That mm-hmm. there is only movement. Marx says in the dissertation, absolute imminent movement. That is a direct quote. 
He calls yeah. it imminent causality and absolute movement. That is all there is for Marx. And anybody that says Marx is like a determinist or a, you know, right. any anything about like reductionism or determinism, it's just not compatible with the dissertation where he says very clearly, matter is just indeterminately swerving, all of it, all the time. I'm sorry, you just can't get determinism out of that. And reductionism, what are you reducing it to? People say that often. I mean, I don't know if it's crossed your all minds to pose that question to me, but a lot of people do of like, well, you're a materialist. That sounds reductionistic to me. I don't like it. Well, I mean, okay, what am I saying? I'm saying indeterminate materialism. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as mechanistic, reductionist. There's nothing to reduce to. Go tell a quantum physicist that everything's reducible to matter. And they'd be like, what are you even talking about? Like energy is just, it's not a determinate state. That is what we know from experiments. That's not a theory. That is at this point, that is experimentally what we observe is that you cannot measure the position and momentum because energy is fundamentally, not just epistemologically. It is as far as we know, experimentally indeterminate. What are you reducing it to? I don't want to drag Graham Harmon in here, but he does. This is what he says about Barad and her theory of of indeterminacy. You mm-hmm. know, he says, oh, quantum flux, right? You know, that's just, you know, these people want to reduce everything to like a lump of matter. And I just have to say, I mean, I've written about it. So, I mean, I'll just say like, <laughs> yeah, nothing could be less like a lump than quantum fluctuations right, and quantum right. indeterminacy. First of all, it's not a substance. Energy is not a substance. Mm. It's not like an object in any sense that we've ever defined objects. It is fundamentally indeterminate. So what are you saying? Like, one, it's not a lump. It's not passive. It's not a substance. It's not a stuff. Furthermore, it's extremely active. Everything is made out of it. There's, everything is just woven from this quantum flux. There's never a place where quantum flux is not happening. But the thing is, what is doing the fluxing? It's indeterminate. You can reduce it to something that's irreducible or non-reductionist. I mean, like you have to say something paradoxical like that of it's reduced to something indeterminate. That's not a classical reduction. Go look up reductionism in a philosophical (laughs) dictionary. And that is not part of the definition. When you reduce something, there's supposed to be something you're reducing it to. Mm -hmm. If you just say it's reducible to an indeterminate process, in my mind, that's not a true reduction. Right. I think this is a good point, you know, to push back against Graham because Graham wants to try to salvage the notion of substance, but to shear away some of its metaphysical trappings, which I think is there are parts of his critiques of other philosophers that are convincing in this when he talks about duo mining, you know, overmining the object from above and undermining it from below. So I think that you would fall into the underminers, right? Because he would say something like, well, you're reducing everything to, to flows, but that's not exactly, that's only a small part of it, right? Because it's precisely, and I, I know that Deleuze can sometimes fall into this because I, you know, when I was reading Being in Motion and when I was reading your works on, on Marx and Lucretius, because I do want to come back to Lucretius and talk to you more about that, but I was thinking about how Deleuze in like Anti-Oedipus, obviously he's championing the flows But there would be something to say about the fact that it's kind of obvious, even if they don't go, I say obvious, it seems like they don't go far enough into, and that work at least, into unpacking the fact that flows imply folds, right, and imply fields. And this is how there can be, I don't want to say semi-permanency or something like that, but there, there can be something like an insubstantial substance or whatever Graham would want to use for it. There can be, it's not just the 
I'll let you speak because I'm not, I'm, I don't want to like quote you, but this notion of matter being pedantic, right. And being, and sort of, and even Marx says in the dissertation about sort of matter, he doesn't use the word fold, but he does kind of talk about matter or nature, sensing itself, smelling itself, hearing itself, right. This sort of this self recurrence and iteration, you know, there is a sense in which he, he does have a, have an idea of folds and fields. And I think that if you leave out that self-recurrence, then it would be appropriate to say, okay, you're undermining the object. It's, if it's all just flows, if it's all just random movement, but pathetic and indeterminate, as you're stressing, isn't random, right? It's not, it's not some sort of ancient notion of chaos. There is, some, there is this sort of emergence of order out of the, the indeterminacy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, indeterminacy is not is not random. You can look at the distributions and the distributions aren't just anything. They come in specific distributions. Like that's how things distribute. And I have to say one of those very common patterns of distribution is is fractals, which is to say distributions that are kind of self-iterative. And that's because exactly what Mark says in the dissertation, it's because matter is self-effective. And that's mm-hmm. where that's what he says quality is. Qualities emerge when matter interacts with itself, when it touches itself. So any self-affection, he doesn't use the word fold. He uses lots of words that include the word fold in capital, but the prefix or whatever. Right, but he, right, does, right. he doesn't say this is a fold. That's certainly my language to describe it. But that is essentially what he's saying. It's appropriate. Um, that's, it's what I, that's my concept is just self-affection. Anything that affects and is affected, which for Marx is everything. And for me, that's everything. Everything affects and is affected. Then mm-hmm. there's some kind of self-relation. And that's roughly what the fold is as a concept. There's no reduction there because, again, it's an indeterminacy. Indeterminate matter, like, it doesn't even make sense to call that a reduction, in my right. opinion. And, and that's ultimately where Marx says something also really crazy in the dissertation. He says, like, this is the, fir- the first form of self-consciousness is when matter interacts and affects itself. And you're yeah. like, wait a minute, what? Mm-hmm. When you read the literature on Marx, it's like, it's totally anthropocentric. The vast majority of it is anthropocentric. Right. Marx is supposedly only ever talking about humans. And it's because I think Marxists just don't read the dissertation or don't take it seriously and understand that their Marx is giving you a fully fledged naturalism in which mm-hmm. matter itself is becoming aware of itself. Now we have to just change the definition of awareness here and of yeah. agency and of affection if it happens to all of nature. So all of nature is affecting itself and in affecting itself shapes itself and comes to know itself. But there's mm-hmm. no, there's no humans at that point in the story. He's just talking about nature affecting itself. So I think it's kind of ripe really for a new materialist yeah. reading to it in thinking about rethinking agency as just being something, it's not just something humans do. For Marx, I think agency, it has to do with affect and affection. Mm-hmm. And now I recognize that changes, broadens significantly the definition of agency, just to say indeterminate movement. But I mean, I think that's what humans are doing as well. We just have our own way of expressing agency, but everything else has its own way of expressing that agency as well. That's really interesting that you bring up naturalism in this context, because this is something that Brassier brought up relative to, I think he's got big into Sellers in particular, and Sellers' naturalism has been a big influence on him. But I guess to go back to something interesting that Harmon said that I think is maybe at least on the surface, to me at least seemed copacetic with your position would be like that, especially, and this also goes to anthropocentrism too, is that something that Harmon said was like, maybe humans aren't the only or the own or the stuff of politics, which I think, yes. is, I mean, that's a fascinating statement to me, but 
how that goes to your work or would like apply here to Marx in Motion is one of the big things that you say or big claims or bold claims is that Marx didn't hold a, a labor theory of value. And I think specifically the question would be, well, what are the political consequences of there not being this labor theory of value? Yeah, now it's a great question because there are definitely political consequences, and it's a split in it's a split in contemporary Marxism. Um, mm-hmm. Whether you know on this point, and I have stumbled into this um, between uh, John Foster and um, Jason Moore. You can read back and forth their articles responding to each other <laughs> on this point because it's not just between them. You know, they're articulating yeah. voices in contemporary ecological Marxism specifically on this issue of whether we should be talking about value at all. These are the two camps. I think historically, most Marxists think about it. I mean, even historically, actually, because the debate between John and Jason really does go back even to the 19th century. Like Engels, Engels was already, honestly, he was on the side of thermodynamic theories of value. Well, okay, fine. Humans aren't the only thing. Let's take a look at all the things that really go into making value. Because one of the critiques of capital is it only looks at like the time you punched in and the time you punch out. That's it. What about the women that took care of the kids and made food? What about the fresh air and clean air and water that nature supplied to make it possible for that worker to eat and on and on and on? And so one approach, and Engels was was part of this, um, and I think this is the side that Jason Moore is on as well, is, well, let's think about you know all the things that really go into making economic value and give them some kind of role and some kind of value in that story and look at the, all the thermodynamic energy and thermodynamic labor. So the labor of animals, the labor of women and, and the labors of, of nature. And on the other side is Foster. And this is this, I'd say this is probably, I mean, I do like Jason Moore's work, but I think I w- I'm more of the camp that sees Marx really hating value, all of it, and never having ever been interested in granting value in his terms. Now, just to be clear for folks, the term value is a technical term in Marx. It doesn't mean like value, good, bad. Value is a very specific technical term that means socially necessary abstract labor time. That would be my bumper sticker for what value means. It doesn't mean good or bad or, you know, anything like that. It's a technical term and it's not transhistorical. It's very much begins with the beginning of capital. Capital invents this. No other culture society has done that. And that's what Marx is talking about. So I read capital and I'm not alone. John and others read it this way too, as Marx saying, this is an imminent critique of value. It's not, it is not an endorsement of an, a better theory of labor and value. It is a rejection of any theory of value whatsoever. It is a rejection of the abstract concept of value. And so let me just say for folks that don't know it, like the labor theory of value is that economic value is based on the labor that goes into that value. And it gives some kind of quantity to the use value or the kind of qualitative activities of humans and nature and whatever. It assigns a quantitative value to those qualitative behaviors and actions. Those things are related. And when you look at the literature on labor theories of value, they can get quite technical and mathematical even. They're Mm -hmm. like, well, if this much labor goes in, then the value ought to be this much higher. And what's the proportion between this much labor and this much value? And they're trying to work out essentially some kind of logical, mathematical, or proportional relationship to 
given all this about labor, what can we say about value and how can we predict and associate and blah, blah, blah. And Marx says, and so this is like on page 130 of the Penguin edition of Capital, Marx gives a very long laundry list of all the things that go into making. So at first he says, oh, it's socially necessary labor time, like what it takes to make something, that's what the value is. And then he gives us a qualified list of all the stuff that goes into it. And it's like, well, it all depends on the relationship to nature, the modes of production, the modes of tech, like what technology and scientific things make these available and how well the laborers work. It's this big list of things that actually are not homogeneous. And he says, actually, they're always changing all the time. Yeah. So there really is no fixed value. And this is this is the part about the cosmic swindle that, you know, Jules and Guatrice and Ant Oedipus, they're like, the relationship between use value and value is a cosmic swindle. It's like assigning a value to the stars. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. How dare you, right? <laughs> like, how dare you look? And this is what Silvia Federici, a Marxist Italian feminist, this is what wages for housework were all about in the 70s. She Ooh. had this whole, you know, kind of program or an activist venture to so to argue for that there should be wages, like women's domestic labor is unpaid and it should be paid. Now you see that's very much on the side of assigning some value to some use value that hasn't been assigned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some Marxists were, were critical of that. She's like, oh, well, I, you know, because if you actually look, I mean, women's domestic labor is like 70% of GDP. Assign even a moderate amount of value, way less than minimum wage to any women's labor. And what you're going to see is that immediately capitalism is no longer profitable. Right. If we assign even a small amount, but it's for her, it was really about a provocation to show you that wouldn't it, do you think it's fair that women should be paid for their labor? Do you think it's fair that we should assign some kind of a value to the forests and water? And if you say, well, yeah, maybe something, be like, no, any something immediately means no profit because that is such a huge part of what goes into value that if you assign any little bit to it, it's immediately unprofitable. So women fundamentally cannot be paid. Capitalism does not work without its forms of systematic patriarchy, racism, and ecological destruction. And that was part of my point too about primitive accumulation is that Mm -hmm. the primitive accumulation, it's not some other thing. It's internal to the process of the generation of value, unless you steal it, right? Unless capitalists go out and actively steal, murder, and whatever, unless they're actively stealing, they're stealing, I can't even assign a percentage because that would again be assigning some kind of value, but it would be like 99.999. They're (laughs) stealing everything and assigning only a tiny little fraction of value and and then claiming that there's like some rational relationship between how much value they're assigning. It's like, well, you looked, you worked five hours and five hours is worth this much. It's like, bullshit. My human activity is not worth anything. Nothing. (laughs) It's worth as much as the stars, as much as the water, as much as any woman's labor, which is to say it should not be assigned any value because it has no rational proportion. And of course, it gets assigned value, economic value. But that is the problem is that it gets assigned arbitrary values that have nothing to do with the activity itself. They have to do with a whole other host of things that are arbitrarily assigned in order to generate a profit. It's like, well, what value would we need to assign to this behavior and activity such that we could make a gigantic profit? That's how it gets assigned, is related to profit making. It has nothing to do with any natural relationship between anything humans or nature do and their proper good value of any kind. So Marx, I think, my reading, is he just rejects the whole idea of value as being completely a metaphysical nonsense. As a belief, it's totally nonsense. As a performance, we really should give an account of its form of motion. How do people go about living like this is true? That's the question. That's the demystification. That's the imminent critique is what masks do we have to wear? On what stage must we perform? What little gestures and daily activities do we have to go through such that this game 
is made real, like religion or something. There is no God, but clearly religion has all kinds of power. And how does yes. it have that power? By doing stuff in the world and exerting it, you know, and all kinds of ways. And yeah, these they're also related to primitive accumulation, but I'll stop there. I just wanted to bring up briefly, this is kind of copacetic with, you mentioned, Taylor, you missed this, but we were talking earlier about a little bit about anarchism in Graeber's new book. But I want to go back to his book on debt, because specifically in debt, there's a, I believe it's a Celtic tribe and their practice was they had a money, like there was a, it was something to do with the trading of women and basically in that trading. So they give, they gave them some type of money that sort of represented that, okay, this, your daughter or your sister or whomever is, there's no way they can't be valued. Like they can't be reduced to a value. We will give you this money, this sort of currency as a way to like abstractly, like recognize that value is irreplaceable. Like, you know what I mean? That it can't be really quantified. There's no, there's nothing I can give you in return for your daughter. That's going to be an equivalent exchange between us, but we will still do this sort of symbolic exchange of whatever, you know, I, and I don't even remember the examples that they use, but anyways, I thought that was kind of an interesting going towards, especially the appropriation of women's labor, I think. You know, obviously, that's a historical process that goes to primitive accumulation, right? In these practices. Yeah, and this, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Taylor. I was just going to piggyback and say this is good because, you know, in anti Oedipus, they have several examples looking at anthropology and discussing how, you know, whether we look at most or uh, other anthropologists where money is is very circumscribed into a market that really is only about certain, you know, small goods or even just bulk goods, when money is introduced as the general equivalent, all of the different economies, the local economies get overcoded and get deterritorialized and, and, and it fucks everything up, right? It just completely turns everything haywire. So it is interesting, Coop, your example of sort of a relative insertion of money but the the examples they give in chapter three of anti-oedipus where they're like yeah when money is it, it becomes the general equivalent and is and is instituted that's when all the different codes go out the window right that's when all the different circumscribed circuits are completely blown out the water and it leads to all kinds of different and this is the good and the bad, right? It leads to all kinds of different deterritorialization. So it does lead in, in a certain sense to whatever we want to call progress or whatever we want to call, you know, sort of being untethered from the dominant codes that tie one to a territory. But at the same time, that obviously um, that destabilization, which which has the glimmer of freedom or whatever, again, whatever ideological word we want to call it, comes with lots of negative consequences, right? This is the kind of weird double-edged sword of capital. Even in Marx, sometimes you see him doing this sort of on the one hand, there is innovation, whatever you want to call it, but obviously the, the negatives outweigh these things. And there, and there has to be a way that, as you're pointing out, the capital can be called to account and, and can be challenged. I mean, this, this idea of, of paying for all these things that are assumed to go into value, you know, even just a little bit, and it topples the system. I can see why that that kind of provocation shouldn't just be a thought experiment, right? I mean, that that's that's part of it is this eternal or not eternal. It is this this question of how do you push like Deleuze Guattari there, like how do you push it fast enough to make it topple? What is it that is going to because we already know that crises are sort of imminent to it. So how, how does it, you know, is it acceleration, right? I mean, to speak of movement, right? Is is that because sometimes that's still kind of in the discourse. Are there other 
things that also go into it. I know that was a lot. That was kind of a just a, a grab bag, but I am interested in you at least responding to maybe something of what Coop said and this notion of, I didn't have a point. I was just piggybacking, but I kept talking. I was trying to give Thomas a, a moment to give us a chance to, to keep the keep the ball rolling. So anything you want to jump off of is, is good. Maybe two things I, w- I would say in response to that. One would, the, the first one would be about the kind of historical point, because I'm not going to say it's the sole cause or that we can talk about historical cause so quickly, but I will say that in Graeber's account, and I mean, other historical accounts too, um, in James Scott's book on Against the Grain. And one of the things that happens with the rise of this general equivalent, this is the thing I was saying, Marx doesn't really give us a historical account so much in Capital. He gives us a conceptual one, and then Dulles and Gortry often fill in the historical part in Anti-Oedipus. But I'd say there's still a lot of historical pieces missing that we would want to say. But I will say that equivalence, general equivalence, or what Marx calls, ex- I mean, early on exchange value, which is like mm-hmm. you exchange a series of things. But once you do that, you've set up a kind of transitive property so that like now this much wheat, just because you did this much wheat and you did it for boot polish and silk and gold, now boot polish, silk and gold can all be exchanged for each other in a certain amount as by transitive property with that much wheat. Anyway, it's a technical argument, but it's just logical trans- transitive properties and logic. Yeah. But once you do that, it's like Marx is trying to showing inadvertently this is basically what happens. This is my point is ancient Sumer, about 3500 BCE, you get the rise of states and you get the rise of tons of stuff. One, the first written language, the mm-hmm. first written, like numbers, abstract cardinal numbers, you get the rise of exchange value, like a, some kind of money system, which is to say a system of exchanges, in this case, silver shekels, where prior to that, what you had were, like you were saying, Cooper, like, you know, just they're ace, like, and what Graeber talks about, they're asymmetrical exchanges, mm, they're mm. gifts, it's a system of gifts. It's like, I'm not going to pretend like this is an equivalent, I'm just going to give this to you. So then Europeans, often anthropologists and political economists look back and they're like, people have always been exchanging things. And they imagine <laughs> that it was just like when they exchange things based on the equal value. But historically, nobody thought about it like equal value. It was more of like a ritual dance performance, like there's all these qualitative dimensions of like, I'll give you these things, but there's no pre- pretense that it's somehow about equality. It's about an asymmetrical gift exchange, basically. It has nothing to do with equality. But the image of equality starts to happen when you get a system of exchanges regulated by a priestly class in ancient Sumer. You also get the rise of slavery, and these are not unrelated, and the rise of debt, and that's what Graeber's tracking. All of those things happen together. So I wouldn't say that it's like money that causes that. I'd say that money, along with slavery, states, and debt, all of those things happen around the same time. The emergence of written language and uh, cardinal numbers. And I've tried to kind of trace the, the material history of all those things in different dimensions, of course, in each of my books. But Theory of the Object is about that world of sciences that kind of you can see the beginnings of debt and it, you know, and slavery. And all those things happen around the same time, even if they're, I would hesitate to say causal because of the metaphysical baggage, but in right. a loose sense, a kind of resonance of a lot of stuff that happens at the same time, which it's really impossible to pull apart. One aspect of this too that I think, and we haven't really, I think, spelled it out as you discussed this devalorization process relative to the labor of women and the earth and so forth, which, you know, I think is, it's great conceptually. Um, one connection I made was to, you know, we've been, you discussed a little bit about most and about a symbolic exchange and symbolic exchange and death. I think there's also, you know, this ties to, I think, a devalorization of the dead themselves or really dead labor, I think ultimately is what sort of gets devalorized, right? Because I think, you know, I use this as example of something like, let's say that I, if you had to pay a license or something like that to use 
algebra or calculus, right? You know what I mean? Then again, like you said, the whole system breaks down if that kind of that like mentality or that process is applied to everything that the bulk of humanity and the earth have sort of given like the wealth that has been generated by those creative processes or that creative motion, et cetera. Right. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting tie in. You don't necessarily have to go into that, but if you have a response. Well, yeah, I mean, I do just to clarify what, what I mean by devalorization is I just mean that every time a value is assigned to some activity could be natural activity or human activity. Every time a value an economic value is assigned, it has a simultaneous it has to decide what gets valued and what doesn't get valued. Yeah. And that is what value is. It's it's just the difference between what's valued and what's not valued, you know, what's given this. So that's what I mean by devalorization is every valorization is simultaneously a devalorization. So mm-hmm. every time a worker is paid for their time at some location, you know, punching in or this many hours, what's being devalorized is being hidden. They're not saying like, here's all the things I'm not paying for. They just say, here's what I'm paying you for, which is the time of your human body in this location. That's what I'm paying for, even regardless of what you do, which sometimes, you know, if you're in a service job or something like that, I've worked those. It's like, you're not even busy. You're just, they're just like, do something like, well, there's nothing to do. There's no customers right now. Go restock the shelves. Like, well, they're already stocked. Well, rearrange them and do something. Sweep the floor. And you're like, okay, but it doesn't need to be swept. Just sweep the floor. It's like, in principle, it doesn't even matter. It's just like your body, it could be anybody is there working for this thing. But they don't say, here's what I'm not paying you for. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not paying you for your clothes. I'm not paying for your education. All of the years that your parents spent taking care of you before you were able to work. But all those are preconditions for that original, for that labor that's being paid for. But they're not paying for the clean air and the water and your parents. And they're not paying for a million things. The history of, they're not paying for the land, the history of of what it took to colonize and genocide the people that whose land it's all, you know, they're not paying for enormous amounts of things. So that's my point about devalorization is yes. And some things we take to be given as like, oh, well, of course they wouldn't pay for that. And it's like, well, why, of course, why wouldn't they pay for that? Why isn't that part of value? That's the question that I, that I want to ask. And I think that Marx is asking is where does that line between devalorization, the things that don't count and the things that do count, where is that drawn? And for me, that answer is what primitive accumulation is. It's always a theft. Any assigning of value, this tree is worth this much, this star is worth this much, this amount of human labor is worth that much. It's instantly, the moment it happens, it's a theft. It's stolen everything that it hasn't included, that, but which is required for it, including, I would just throw out the stars in the history of the cosmos. All of that mm-hmm. is included. It's all necessary. Yeah. But we say, well, of course we couldn't pay for that. Well, it's like, well, why, of course? I mean, it was all needed. It was all labor that the cosmos did in order for us. And you might be like, well, that's extreme and ridiculous. Of course, we wouldn't pay for it. But that is essentially, that's an extreme version of what is also being devalorized. And I'm certainly not saying, well, let's try to actually give a value to the Milky Way or the black hole at the center of the Milky Way doing all this work to keep us all moving. No, but that's the point. We would be ridiculous to assign value, not just to the cosmos, not just to our galaxy, but to anything it's ridiculous to assign a value to because it's all the same basic philosophical activity of abstraction and metaphysics. You're mm-hmm. just imagining you can go around and assign a quantity to stuff, but that's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So like it, maybe we should organize society around the things we want to do. We understood there extremely broadly, right? What do we want instead of what has this value? Why would we say what has this value? Who cares what value you could randomly assign or arbitrarily assign to make a profit? Why don't we just say like what we want to do and try to make things so that everybody has what they need so that they can 
help decide what we want to do together. It's a shift completely politically to kind of really anti-economics in the way that we normally understood it. Marx is not like offering an alternative economy. It's not an alternative theory of the economy. It's an imminent critique and demystification of political economy, all of it, every bit of it. It's a rejection of economy, the rejection of value, an exposure of its deep metaphysical commitments that are just masks behind which is hidden violence and theft and murder and slavery and all that stuff. I like getting to the very heart of it. I mean, because that that is obviously the important part. And it's interesting, too, that this is perhaps why that such a deep reading of the first chapter of Capital, Volume 1, is necessary, especially in light of what we learn and what you what you help make very clear from the dissertation, right? This, whether we call it a naturalism or, you know, this, the kinetics, right? The, this, this sort of uh, a kinosophy, whatever. I'm sure we could make up all kinds of words, but we talked earlier about the self-affection of nature and the self-affection of whatever it be, whether it be the dialectical cancellation of the atom in the line, as he kind of puts it, right? I hadn't really noticed it in my readings And I guess that so much of it is taken for granted and, you know, so much of it is what we could call common sense or or whatever. But, you know, Coop has here in the notes this notion of a kinetic dialectics, you know, the analyzing the commodity form and how value starts to take on this transitive property that you bring out. But I didn't notice until until reading the dissertation and until reading Marx in Motion, this notion where there is this self-affection going on too within the commodity form in assigning in the, we could call it the birth of exchange value. And I thought that that was really interesting, like the linen sensing itself within the coat. You do go through this kind of step-by-step and it kind of blew my mind because it was a lot of stuff that I had taken for granted and I hadn't really thought about in that way. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Uh, you know, this notion that there is also this self-effective motion going on in Marx analyzing how exchange value sort of comes about. I think the thing that I would say here is one way that the dissertation, the idea of uh, what he calls Zusammenhängen, the yes. hanging together, how things sort of hang together. Unfortunately, it's either completely eliminated in, in some English translations, this term, or it's translated as like interconnection or something like right, that. And right. I just think, you know, it's more like an entanglement, like things are really together with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And Zusammen hanging, literally hanging together like a spider's web or something like that's a naturalistic, a naturalistic point he makes about how matter hangs together. So all of the material movements of the world sort of they're not random, the swerve is not random, it hangs together. And it, it relates to what comes before, but not in a deterministic way and not in a random way either. But things right. sort of hang together in these iterative metastable formations. And one of those ways, like you were saying, is in the the relationship of commodities and our relationship to them, they hang together as well. And one of the words that Marx, I think, ends up using later in Capital and is metabolism. And it's a similar yeah. idea. I think he got really excited when he learned that word. And <laughs> he really ran with it as a concept too, because um, this guy Liebig and, and even, even people before Liebig, a friend of Marx's, whose name I'm forgetting, but John Foster told me about it. It's a great connection. But anyway, the idea of metabolism, like there's an organic metabolism, the way that nature recycles and feeds on itself. And then Marx is like, yeah, there's a human metabolism, the way we eat and shit and waste energy and consume. And then also nature does that. And then also, and this is Marx's original insight, there's a social metabolism. Yeah, I think this is his big idea of thinking about 
how there's these three metabolisms, nature metabolism, human metabolism, and then social metabolism. And he distinguishes between these three. They're all, of course, interrelated, but the metabolisms are the zuzaman hanging. They're the way everything hangs together. So there's three of these metabolic processes. They all hang together. We can't think about society without nature. We can't think about it without these human bodily activities. So when we're looking at, you know, the coat and the linen, the coat and the linen, I mean, I think people usually just skip past this along with all the footnotes to like Shakespeare yeah. and Dante yes. and yeah, you yeah. know, they're like, oh, Marx is just showing off his knowledge of the classics here just by by citing Lucretius and, you know, all this stuff. But I, I think he's doing it because it actually really is relevant. And he doesn't mean this just in some kind of metaphorical way. I think he really means that the linen and the coat sort of see each other in the same way that he talked about the sun and the plant in the manuscripts affecting right. and, and being affected by one another in a kind of metabolic relation. So there's a real physical relationship between the way that the linen is woven into the coat and the the coat's express relationship to that linen, that's really performative, that's very material, that hangs together. And it shows you that commodity, it's not just like commodities are, they're not genuinely abstractions, they're real performances. And we really have to make linen into a coat and we really have to wear the coat. And the coat also has this all this all this great imagery too that I think people don't usually notice because he says that use value, he says it's the bearer, the trager, this really great German word that means to like to carry and to bear, but to kind of like give birth to the way that use values bear and hold up in the way that nature and women's labor sort of bear and hold up. They're the basis and the scaffolding of which value then assigns some kind of quantity to. But you know, the way in which the coat he says like the coat, you kind of wear it, you know, this idea of carrying the coat and you bear it, this great image of sort of the way that we performatively bear capital. So capital isn't just a strictly ideological mistake, you know, it's not, so this is like, you know, it's not an ideological critique of like, oh, it's some mental confusion about what's going on. It's a performative confusion. Right. We think that this is just the way things are, but Marx is like, no, we're actors on a stage, we're performing capital. Capital has to be performed through various patterns. And one of those patterns is wearing a coat and then carrying the coat and bearing, bearing the coat. He says, yeah, very, very dramatic things about the, you know, as you said, like, you know, the coat seeing itself in the linen and you're like, well, what do you mean there, Mark? <laughs> is this just like metaphorical or like, are you really think that it's doing that? And I think the answer is that he has a much more um, kind of agentive interpretation of mm -hmm. what matter is doing. Matter is very much participating alongside humans in this process of making patterns of motion that reproduce capital. So what do we need for capital? We need people to move this way and we need things that can move this way. Mm -hmm. And that's also part of the story. It's not just like some bad idea that humans have foisted upon nature and we're just deluded about it. It's also that we do it and our doing of it could be different precisely because it's a doing that could always be otherwise than it is. And I think that's the kind of gesture toward an alternative, even though he says very little about communism in capital. Well, it sounds like you've gone into the, the next part of the notes, which would be this metabolic communism, which, you know, we've kind of been discussing around the edges, this notion that Marx brings to the fore of a, of a social metabolism. And so that's, I find that fascinating. And, you know, this, I was thinking about the, when you brought up the linen, seeing the, its value in the code, I was thinking he got, he got a hold of some of that ergot, right? You know, <laughs> and had, 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 had a good time. Um, but and I see here, I was going to bring up earlier, but there's there, obviously there's so much to discuss when you were talking about Aristotle and obviously this prejudice, which still is with us today, even if it's been philosophically attacked from many different sides, this notion that it's, it's the form that is, that is active 
or the soul that is active and, and the body or matter is merely passive. And I was definitely thinking about this in terms of, you know, this is how Simon Doan begins his, his dissertation, his project, looking at dismantling this, basically this philosophical prejudice as though we can isolate activity to sort of like one side or agency to one side. And I think that even if Simon Don doesn't necessarily have a theory of, of motion in the way that, say, Marx does or the way that Marx implements, I do think that reading between the lines, you, you can kind of see how he would be in line. Obviously, Deleuze sees something in him, but he would also be in line with Marx on sort of this notion that Whenever there is information involved in, and whenever we can say there's a system, there's always going to be these dynamic fields. There's always going to be potential energy that is mediating between different orders of magnitude. And so in that sense, I think that this part of seeing along with Marx's naturalism, as you've kind of elaborated for us in your books and today, is precisely undermining the sort of dominance of hylomorphism. And I wonder if you have anything to say about that, along with the fact that I know that Marx was deeply indebted to Aristotle for some things, right? He was definitely, but at the same token, as you've pointed out, he, he's obviously breaking with him on some big points too. Yeah, the unmoved mover, definitely he's breaking with him on that. I think he's probably, I think he seems consistent with Aristotle's theory of movement. I think that's probably a shared point. Let's see, on helomorphism, for sure, it's very obvious that Marx is a materialist and he's he's laying his cards on the table in the dissertation. Right. In the dissertation, as much as I think he does like and read Aristotle a lot, in the dissertation, he's clear that he puts Aristotle on the side of misunderstanding the materialism of Epicurus. He sees Aristotle as thinking of matter as passive and it doesn't swerve. I mean, yeah. Aristotle doesn't have a swerve and Marx is never going to, that's never going to fly with Marx's naturalism. That's much more indebted to Lucretius's theory of the swerve because that's the only place where Marx could have got the theory of the swerve is from Lucretius, not from Epicurus. Even people who mention things about the swerve in Epicurus, it's extremely limited. Lucretius bakes it into the entire poem. The swerve is part of everything. And Michel Serre does a really good job of showing that, of how the swerve is just, it's absolutely systematic systematic in Lucretius. It's not some one little moment that explains human freedom. It's right. actually everywhere in the poem. And so that was a that was a great, exciting inspiration for me, Michel Serre's book on the birth of physics. Yes. But in any case, yeah, I agree about the Simon Doan. I think Simon Doan has lots of great insights, one of those definitely being the critique of helomorphism. And I think it's just, it's not a question of like the helo over the, it's not a question of matter over form. My position is that what has been called matter and what has been called form since Aristotle, these have basically been, I mean, I disagree with the very definitions. And what I think we're, yes. what's going on there is much more that's just like, it's just like a metamorphism mm -hmm. where it's not like, oh, is there form? Like, what do you even mean by form? It's like, it's a fixed <laughs> thing that occurs a priori. No, like you have right. to account for the genesis of form, but matter, same thing. Like, oh, there's some kind of substance. No, there's no substance. There's no substance. There's no form. There's no matter. There's no form. There's just constant metamorphosis in which forms are all constantly emerging, but never totally fixed. There is no such thing as pure form that we could like isolate or conceptualize. There's only a constant transformation, which is neither form nor matter as substance. 
So I think it's not just a question of giving agency to matter. It's a question, it's it's like undermining the whole dualism entirely between matter and form, realizing that forms are only emergent metastable forms and that matter is a constant indeterminate process, which is never reducible to a single substance. In my philosophy, I've tried to like really redefine entirely that those distinctions and instead go with the process version. That's neither neither matter nor form in their, those classical definitions. I think Simon Doan might, even though we don't have to, to get into this, I think he, he might be more of a, of a kind of a vitalist, but I think his critique of helomorphism is, is right on. You kind of brought, us, brought me to the next question, which I was thinking about. And I, I believe when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned, because you do have, obviously you've got Mark's Emotion and you've got what you've got, a, you got three books on Lucretius now. Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One on ontology, one on ethics. And what is the, the third? Is it, is it on politics or is that just a guess? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. The third one's on history. History. Um, really. I, I, it's I, about, it's about death. It's about the death of the world actually. Awesome. Um, it's re- it was a super fun one to write. And I feel like I learned a lot over the course of the books that kind of comes out in the third book in ways it doesn't come out in the, the first two. Because I was reading through your, your first book and I was trying to remember whether or not you had mentioned working on a, a translation of the poem. I did. And I have, I worked with a student. It was hard work and convinced me that there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to actually do a translation of the whole book because of yeah. how hard it is and how much work it takes to do translation and how many other projects I have going on. But right. we did translate the first 37 lines and I found so many great things just that I was like, oh, I wish I had been able to put this into the first book. They're small, but there's enough small ones that add up to just really being lots of great material. So I think it's easily something I'll keep coming back to that book, those books, you know, and teaching them over and over again. Do you want to say a little bit about like maybe some insights just translated a translator? I'm I'm curious if that, as you said, that you wish you would have done that for the first book, because you do read you know, you give, you give a beautiful reading of those opening lines in the first chapter of your first book. Did you see some things coming out in handling the, the translation that helped to, I don't want to say confirm, but helped to kind of deepen your appreciation for Lucretius and his, the kind of politics and all the, the, the kind of philosophy? You know, what did you see coming out of emerging from, from your translation? So many more words than I originally thought are really descriptive of weaving and process. Okay. Um, also the plurals. I didn't realize how many plurals had been translated out of the original text, but in the Latin, mm. so many more things are plural, including the word matter. Oh, well, not there, the word matter, but whatever, all the pl- many words, he's got like six different words to describe matter. And they're, right, all, right. they're all done in the plural. So it's always matters. And right. I think that that's revealing that we're not talking about matter as a substance. We're talking about matter as matters, as a plural, as, a, yeah. as an indeterminate process, which is always being kind of characterized in a very singular sort of way. Here, it's going to sound like this, and here it'll sound like that. And part of it's part of the, the, the poetry. He's trying to make the rhythms of the lines work. But that too exposes something really important about that kind of materialism that is poetic, which is to say, you can't just talk about matter in general. Like Aristotle's just going to like come up with a concept of matter by appropriating right. a Greek word that he just took. And there's a long history, don't get me started on that, but a long <laughs> history of why he chose the word hule. And it's related to this whole nomos idea too. By the way, the undivided, why he chooses tree, it's partly because Plato chooses the Cora, which is the countryside. It's the right. undivided pasture land. That's what matter is. It's this indeterminate, unowned, collectively shared process 
of that's fairly wild, you know, people live amongst it, but there's lots of wilderness out there. And so this image of a kind of wild materialism, it's there from the beginning, except Plato and Aristotle hate it, but they do appropriate those words. And there's lots of reasons why they do it that have to do with Homer and Hesiod and even the Minoan tradition before them. Anyway, I said I wouldn't digress, but no, this is great. It's <laughs> good. The thing that I was going to say about the insights from Lucretius is the pluralism of his materialism, the poetry of the way that his materialism is expressed in the philosophy can't come out as a single concept. The other thing too, is it's extremely process-based. There's all these weaving and folding language terms that I didn't catch on the first round. And there's also just in the first 37 lines, it's extremely eroticized. I mean, that's a given. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't know that. I'm just saying it was much, I found a much many more places where I was like, holy cow, this was really translated out of it where he, right. he's, he's talking about teaching Memmius about the nature of things. And he says, oh, Memmius, I'm going to tell you all about the nature of things. I'm going to plant some seeds, you know, that right. grow into plants that you're going to see. And so he's, you know, the seeds, of course, are the nature of things. It's matter. He's going to plant this matter. And then he summons up Venus and he says, you know, with Venus as my, you know, and I think like the English translations are usually of like, as my guide or something like that. But the word is more intimate than guide. It's very much like consort. There's a very okay. intimate relationship between, because he's going on about all this eroticism. Oh, desire fuels everything. Everything is made of desire. And Venus is that desire that everything expresses. And now I'm going to share with you. And my consort is going to be Venus. And together we're going to plant these seeds that are going to grow. And you're like, whoa, this is like very eroticized story of like, you know, he's going to be filled with desire and he's going to plant his seeds. And you're like, okay. And then the results are going to be this plant that's going to grow these plants. And then Menius is going to see what the nature of things are by watching essentially Lucretius have sex with Venus and then spread his seed and just, and all these words of like disseminate, you know, he says, yeah. but it's to like scatter, you know, it's not this kind of genealogical story. It's this kind of like spreading of seed, the haphazard distribution of the seed that it's going to land and the, and the distribution is going to show something about the nature of things because things aren't distributed randomly. Certain things are going to grow out of other things. Anyway, it's like there's all these layers of naturalism and eroticism in ways that remind me very much of Bataille's solar anus poem. Um, <laughs> I think that that's true of a lot of ancient literature of sort of, you know, what do we call it? Bowdlerizing. I know that like the Yawit translation of Plato and, uh, you know, kind of expurgates a lot of, it likes to de-eroticize. It's a very typical thing as though the ancients weren't fucking, you know, I mean, is that, <laughs> you know, it's, how, how did we get here? That's good. And it kind of helped me appreciate after reading Marx in Motion. And before I started being in motion, I was, I started reading the first volume of your Lucretia series. And it kind of helped to as you've been pointing out throughout our conversation, right? Like Marx is, it could be a scholarly, scholarly quibble, but Marx is attributing to Epicurus a lot of things that, that Lucretius is thinking through very clearly, you know, even in those opening lines, those, those opening 37 lines beyond the, the eroticism, there is, there's a lot of convergence and resonance in whether we call it this naturalism or this kinetic materialism going on in Lucretius and Marx. And I think that you're right to, emphasize that it is with Lucretius that we could really start to see more clearly rather than the fragments we have of Epicurus that there is you know all of these notions that we see in Marx the even just like the pedetic movement or the flows and fields and, and folds this is where you know you make it clear that Lucretius and Marx are actually the kind of the two 
forerunners to look to for a philosophy of motion or however you'd want to call it. Would you agree with that? If we wanted to like really narrow it down, because I get a lot of people mention like Heraclitus. And when I say, oh, I'm into the philosophy of movement and, you know, process stuff, they they say, well, what about so and so? And, you know, I've, I've taught a lot of taught a lot of figures following what about so and so questions, I have not turned out anything positive, because although there are lots of variations, I'd say the key thing is this, is there a theory of indeterminate movement as fundamental? And I really think that that question, almost nobody is able to seriously hold that position that matter moves indeterminately, period, full stop, no higher, there's no forces. It's not part of time. It's not part of some higher explanatory power of an unmoved mover, an eternal God, or some other metaphysical principle that is somehow going to trump indeterminacy in its most radical form. It's a very rare position in the West. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, that I'm still tracing and discovering. Just since I mentioned Heraclitus, because a lot of people think about him as a process philosopher, incidentally, he is one person who Lucretius directly directly references in De Rerum Natura and says, this is not me. This is not materialism. And this is not what I'm talking about. He directly rejects monism. Just speaking of economics of exchange, I mean, Heraclitus says everything exchanges for fire, like money. I mean, it's a very early Greek kind of idea of the rise of cities. You know, this is a first kind of polis-centric Greek philosophy. And here's Heraclitus thinking about ontology like it's money. And that just shows you how embedded his philosophy is inside of the polis. And also he's a monist. Everything is fire. Yeah, that's not that is not what indeterminacy is about. Indeterminacy is not fire or water or anything. And that's what Lucretius says. He's like, matter is not some kind of substance. It's not like fire. It's not an element. But you have all these elemental kind of, you know, the Fusikoi, the early Greek philosophers. Oh, maybe it's water and air. And like, you know, they're trying to basically turn matter into historically, they're trying to turn it into something that can be granted a concept or a substance. And that's what Heraclitus is up to just as much as the rest of him. And to the degree, even though it's like, oh yeah, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. Yeah. Yeah. But like, if everything is fire, you're always stepping into the same river because it's always fire. So like monism is just, that's not his position. I mean, we actually skipped a question about kinetic communism, but I can say something very quickly. I could just respond to that because I'm realizing I didn't say anything about it, which instead of thinking about communism as some particular political ideology, I think for Marx, Communism really has to do with these three interlocking metabolisms. It's not just about like regulating exercise, like just human desires. It's also about regulating, it's about managing those in terms of a larger metabolic process. Marx, I don't think ever had that. I mean, he says straight up in the 1844 manuscripts that humanism equals naturalism equals communism. He never thought about communism as like not involving humanity or like the arts. You know, he says he defines uh, actually communism in the 1844 manuscripts as the emancipation of the senses. It's my favorite definition of communism. If anybody ever asks me, I say Mark says it's the emancipation of the senses because that's that's what he has in mind. But the emancipation of the human senses are the same project of the emancipations, emancipation of ecological diversity and the emancipation of natural senses. How many ways can nature sense itself? Well, it's related to the project of how many ways humans can sense and know themselves. It's a process of like pluralistic experimentation without there being any telos of like communism means X. Now, he does say like, well, 
we should probably do something so that people have enough to survive. Like, cause if we're dead, we can't do any experimentation. So there's right. a minimum contribution of like, yeah, we should have food and shelter and these should be like universal Ooh. kind of, you know, basic structure. But the purpose of that is not just to have that. So we're alive. The purpose is not just to live. It's to like, as he says, you know, buy books and go dancing and play, you know, and fence and go fishing. And he just gives a whole laundry list because for him, communism isn't, it's much more about kind of balancing a metabolic system and capitalism and any other system that is going to break those metabolisms and pretend like it's not metabolic as if it's not part of the earth systems is basically, he calls it metabolic rift. It's a break of the metabolic systems. And that is what metaphysics does is it breaks the metabolic metabolic systems and pretends like there's some kind of thing or process or idea or force outside of the metabolic process. But so communism is just, it's an experimentation knowing full well that you're embedded in all this metabolic process. How do you kind of distribute all of those desires, right? The mechanosphere. I think Guattari has that same yeah. kind of idea of like, it's not just humans. Communism is not just a human project. It's an ecological project. It's one of the emancipation of the senses. In any case, that's my short definition I love it. of metabolic communism. <laughs> this could be a, a good place to wrap up. I mean, ending with this discussion of communism, yeah. I think is, is a good note to, to end on. I do like that definition of, of communism. I, I know that he also, a lot of times I see you know, on social media, the communism is free time and nothing else. And some, <laughs> sometimes I like that when I'm, when I'm kind of in despair, I'm like, yeah, you know, that'd be nice. Just a little bit more free time. We definitely have to have you back to talk about a number of, of your other books. Oh, yeah. I was hoping to get to theory of the object. I just, uh, I want, I was taking my time with being in motion and there's even a lot there that I would like to ask you about, but, but a lot of it was helping to reinform the basis on which a lot of your arguments in Marx and Motion were, uh, you know, embedded. And, uh, and so I do want to get to theory of the object. Maybe that, that'd be a good place to, to talk about Graham again, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and see some, some more of convergences and divergences. I'm glad that we, we had you on the show. And, uh, and I know that, you know, your work is, I know that our audience is going to be thrilled to hear about this kind of stuff. I really appreciate the time you've taken to uh, both of you to read my work. I mean, it's like you said, there's a, there's a lot there and it's overwhelming and <laughs> so much so that I'm actually, I'm one of the books that I'm working on now. I mean, it's basically done recently, but uh, is a kind of introduction. Cause I realize now it's like overwhelming. You're like, what is this stuff all about movement? You know? And then you're just like, but if you pick up any one of the books, you're kind of getting a specific lens on things. So yeah. I'm writing kind of a synthesis right now. It's going to be short. It's like really introductory you know, leaving out a lot of technical details, but just kind Mm -hmm. of sketching the philosophy and its core positions and its differences and similarities as a kind of way to introduce the idea. But I really appreciate you guys. I mean, on the show, it's awesome. I mean, I listen to your, I listen to the other interviews that you guys do and they're great. It's so cool that it's been as successful as it is. And I would love to come back on and talk more. And we, yeah, we didn't get into objects and also maybe it's better, but we didn't get into the critique of vitalism. I do want to pick your brain about about Deleuze, I mentioned it earlier. I, I, that'd be a whole nother episode. I do exactly, yeah. Because I have, I have some very because I get asked a lot, and I've ha- and I'm not, now I've written enough on it. The one article I wrote is not published yet, but there is an article that I wrote that's it's called uh, "What's the Matter with Life." And uh, it's a critique of kind of post-humanist vitalism and new materialism. And so I'm not uncritical of new materialism or Deleuze, but I mean, the truth is Deleuze is like, he's my, 
he's influenced so much and it's taken me quite a while to see even some small problems. But Lucretius has kind of been that linchpin a little bit where he's like, Lucretius gave me, I had never been able to see outside Deleuze. I was like, no, Deleuze is just right about everything. Like I can't even <laughs> a single, there's not a single hole in anything he said. And that's how I felt for a very long time. But it was Lucretius that kind of showed me the outside a little bit. Yeah. And that outside has grown to some degree, but but it's very much grown with respect to Deleuze introduced. Like that's even why yeah. I was reading Lucretius in the first place. Right. Because like, well, hey, Deleuze wrote about him. So it's probably cool and worth looking yeah. into deeper than he did, you know, just kind of following his footnotes. In any case, there's so much more to talk about. So I'd, I'd love to come back. Yeah. I mean, soon you'll, we'll have, there'll, there'll have to be a, a portable nail, you know, uh, <laughs> like, like the portable Nietzsche. And uh, I do think um, maybe later in the fall, love to have you back. And I know that, it would be hard to talk about being in motion as, as a whole because it is a it is a tome, but there are parts of like the critique of Deleuze there that that I think sharing with Coop would be would be good. And and at that point, hopefully, maybe we could even just talk about that along with your uh, your article. What what's the matter with life? I think that'd be a cool yeah. follow up episode. I mean, I've had very productive conversations with uh, with Deleuzean vitalists. Some things are more straightforward some of my disagreements, but this one I think is, it's difficult because it's not clear what vitalism is. Well, let's not get into it, but the point yeah, is, yeah. it's a good, Say it, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a productive conversation because most of new materialism is a kind of vitalism. It's a big thing right yeah. now. It's exerting a lot of influence outside of philosophy and theory for sure. And it is almost exactly what people think about when you say new materialism, they think of Jane Bennett and they think of vitalism, but it's not the only way of doing new materialism. But I think most people feel that, that they're basically identical. I don't think we have to go that route. I think there is another alternative. And yeah, it's worth having. I think it's a valuable, it's not just polemic for the polemic sake. I think it's a question of where philosophy is heading right now, yeah. post Deleuze. And I'm certain, I'm certainly post Deleuzean in the sense of having been influenced and not yet fully beyond the horizon of Deleuze's work. I mean, it's influenced so much of new materialism, but you know, there's still new places to go that Deleuze didn't. That's definitely uh, an idea to come back to. And we have had you, I've had you for two hours. I know Coop's had you for almost three. <laughs> so we should let you enjoy the rest of your day. But I just want to thank you again for coming on and for answering our questions and for enlightening our, our, our audience who is keen for this stuff. I mean, I do think that these different engagements with Marx are really important and seeing a like a fresh philosophical lens that puts you on a path to read Marx in the correct, with the correct perspective like that to me is fundamentally needed. And, you know, I think everything else follows from that, not just Marx, but just this corrective to a lot of Western metaphysics is still needed. We're, we're still dealing with it. And that's why I think we'll need you back for uh, tackling vitalism. Yeah, let's do it. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I'll, thanks, I'll, Thomas. Yeah, let's, talk, let's talk again soon. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Once again, <laughs> thanks to Thomas Nail. That will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. 
let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in uh, block work or anything.